where's the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on gotodobbs.com now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skilled team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. This is the Ribs and BK Podcast on 101 ESPN. And O'Neal lifts it in the air out to left center. It's at the wall. Gone! Home run, Tyler O'Neal in his first bat of 2020. High fly ball, deep left field at the wall. Gone! Two-run homer, Paul. Young. They play him straight up and the 0-2. Goldschmidt with a drive. Out to deep left. It's at the wall. Goodbye. Off of Big Macklin. A prodigious blast. Oh my. Goldschmidt makes it 1-0 Cardinals. Welcome in. Rivs and BK here on Monday morning. He is Alex Ferrario. Subbing in for the great BK, who is, uh, we'll call him on special assignment, (laughs) the assignment to relax this weekend. I'm Jamie Rivers, and we've got T-Bone, big old Tanner, on the board today. We're bringing you lots of stuff. Cardinals had a great opening weekend. Baseball starting to face a bit of a harsh reality, but Cardinals, big win on Friday, 5-4. Saturday, big win, 9-1. The bats were heating up that day. A little sluggish on Sunday. 5-1 loss. Cardinals outfield, though, 4 for 27, 148. Not great. Not great, guys. Two home runs, four RBI, four runs scored. Wong, Goldie, and DeYoung all had a great series. That looks real positive. 13 for 34, two home runs, five RBIs, 10 runs scored. Certainly positive when you talk about the Cardinals. Now, what's not positive? Or actually, it is very positive. (laughs) The testing that has gone on with the Miami Marlins. A lot of positive testing. And Jeff Passan had some things to say about the Marlins here this morning. These Marlins players tested positive before the game yesterday. Why did they play yesterday? Good question, Trey. <laughs> I think I that, mean, I think that the players wanted to play, and I think that Major League Baseball didn't want to set off any alarms with just four players, but uh, the the entire Philadelphia Phillies roster was exposed. Uh, you know, the Atlanta Braves, who they played in exhibition games earlier this week, could have theoretically contracted it. And, you know, we've seen two players there, uh, Travis Darno and Tyler Flowers. They're two catchers. Uh, had to, uh, I'm not sure if they're actually on the injured list or not playing games, but uh, no reason has been given, which tends to mean in this case COVID. All right, Alex Ferrario, 
We listened to that. We kind of, this is a fluid situation right now. Mm-hmm. We don't know where it's headed. We don't know if an hour from now there could be more positive tests. We've got Rob Manfred that's probably going to have a press conference coming up here this morning. Somebody's got to shed some light on this, but your initial thoughts on what is going on right now with the Marlins. Honestly, how the hell did it get to this point? I mean, that's the first thought that comes to mind when I heard them talking about it this morning, and you sent the article last night, Rivs, to me talking about just the Miami Marlins and these cases popping up, but when you hear the fact that most of these guys were symptomatic and still showed up to the ballpark, that's frustrating. But beyond that, it even gets more frustrating when you sit here and you hear that these guys went through the precautions of playing baseball, showing up to the field when they knew that the tests weren't back yet. They weren't sure if they were symptomatic, asymptomatic, if they passed this or not. But the 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 lines among this kind of built up to this point. And I Jeff Passon went on to talk about there that, like, look, they showed up because they just didn't want to ring the alarm in Major League Baseball. That's not how this works. This is to the point now where everybody's livelihood relies on this. Not just baseball players, but family members when the players go home and you went to the field knowing that this was an issue and spread it amongst other players. And now you've canceled two baseball games. And and I don't even know if we should blame the players for this yet, Rivs. Like, I think we should just blame society at this point that it's gotten to this, that we haven't been able to just brush this away, but it gets worse when players show up to the ballpark. Okay. So here's my thoughts on this is I was worried about this. And I said it about a week ago, maybe even two weeks ago. And I don't know, some people poked fun at me and, you know, I got a little bit, a ribbon on the text line, but my problem was that this testing is daily. Well, great, okay, but what happens if you test negative in the morning and then you move on about your business and then somehow, some way, you contract the virus? You take the text test the next day. You haven't got the results back yet. Now you're on the field. You're in the clubhouse. You're on the plane with whatever you're doing, and then we find out. Oh boy, you tested positive. Well, within that time frame. You have come into contact with so many different people. And I think this is where the problem is right now with Major League's plan. And and I'll ask you a question about this. 60 games in 62 days, right? Mm -hmm. Did Major League Baseball get this wrong? And here's what I'm thinking. Should they have allowed one day in between at least series? Okay, like we know in between each game, that's going to be astronomical. You'll spread this thing out forever as far as the season goes. But should they have allotted mandatory at least one game between series in order to get some of these tests back, in order to make sure that that team is going to be healthy headed into the next series? Did they get it wrong? Yeah, I think so. Because if you mandate something like this, then you know you're taking the precautions before series open up. Now, you would have had to give yourself a little more leeway, too, because let's say you do have those games in between when you're traveling and there is an outbreak. Well, you're going to have to cancel something like they just did or postponed as they called it with the Philadelphia Phillies game that was going to be played. So with all of that being said, I want to go any step further with that, Rivs, and I'll tell you where they got it wrong. They should have did the bubble. The bubble is the biggest mistake that Major League Baseball has happened right now. It just came out moments ago, the NHL, zero COVID outbreaks, zero positive tests among this phase three with training camps. And now they're in a bubble where they're going to successfully pull this off. Major League Baseball missed the call on this by not putting these games in a bubble to where they could have managed this better. So we talk about Major League Baseball. We talk about their restart process, and we've all wondered if this was the right call. Well, Ashley Brewer had a few things to say about this as well. 
This is terrible news for the league, and I just think it goes to show what a poor job they did in planning. The protocols that they had in place from the beginning were never going to work. And there's a, you can compare it to the NBA. The NBA got it right. They have zero positive tests currently. They haven't had a few in a while. It's been unbelievable watching the success of the NBA and the lack of planning, the lack of structure and protocol in Major League Baseball. And I just hate to say it, this is just the beginning. So how does everybody else surrounding Major League Baseball, how do they know that this is not set up right? How do they, re- how do they get to the point of knowing that what the, M- what the Major League Baseball Players Association and owners have done, probably not going to work? How does that happen, yet Major League Baseball just sort of fluffs over it at the start, and now they're faced with this huge obstacle? Because it's yours. I mean, <laughs> didn't mean to stump it, you there, it, Alex. No, it's, it's not that it stumps me. <laughs> when I ask you a question, you're supposed to answer it. Okay, there's there's no death well, sentence involved. That's, that's why I didn't make it through high school very easily. Was, they ask the questions, then you pause, and you're not know what the hell to go with it. I, I I pause there because it's irresponsibility all around. Like there's no specific area that you could point to and say how did it get this bad or who does this fall on. Because it's everybody. I mean, look, the owners wouldn't come to the agreement to get this thing started earlier so you could lay that gaps in between so you could have the tests and you could put the responsibilities. The players are to blame because they did want to do a bubble. They wanted to be able to go home with their families where, yes, I understand in a 60-game season that's tough, but, look, sacrifices are going to need to be made if you want to play a season in full, and now you're at this point. But at the end of the day, this doesn't happen. If the Marlins don't play baseball, if the Marlins ring the bell, if they sound the alarm yesterday, Rivs, or two days ago, whenever these symptoms come out, we're not talking about this. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a Miami Marlins team that, yeah, there should be some alarms being rung around that they're playing among this pandemic and these guys all tested positive. But look, the Nationals, Juan Soto took the step back and said, I'm not going to play. I have the I have. It's a positive test. So the Marlins, to me, are the biggest reason why we are sitting here talking about this and not a successful weekend in Major League Baseball. And the most interesting part about Juan Soto is not only does he test positive, but the Nationals tests say he's negative. And he still decides, you know what, I'm not going to play. So what are the Marlins players thinking then? And they're symptomatic. Jeff Passan said it with Get Up this morning that there were players that were symptomatic with the coronavirus. Either way, guys, it's called being irresponsible. Yeah. Okay. If baseball players want to get their full prorated salary, if they want to complete this season, if they want to actually have something to show for all the effort, they got to be a little more responsible, a little more self-aware. And at the end of the day, they got to be more honest yep. with everybody. Say, hey, look, I'm not feeling good. You know, I'm not sure if I'm going to test positive or not, but maybe I should take the day off. So. Guess what, players? The onus comes back on you guys to be honest. And yeah. major, major league managers and general managers, you got to get on board too and promote your players to do that, to yeah. do the right thing. So uh, it's going to be an interesting situation as it's uh, developing by the hour, it seems like. And our next guest here, Sarah Lang, coming up here after the break. She's a Major League Baseball reporter for MLB.com, and we are going to ask her some of these very questions. So please stay with us. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. All right, welcome back to Ribs and BK. He is Alex Ferrario, subbing in for Brandon Kylie. I am Jamie Rivers, Tanner Hendrickson on the board. 
Right now, we're going to go to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Hotline, joined by Sarah Langs, who is an MLB reporter for MLB.com, on Twitter, at S. Langs on Sports. Give her a follow. Sarah, how are we doing today? Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. Doing, doing well. You know, we had a fun weekend of baseball, so see what's next. Yeah, you're probably doing better than the Marlins are today. And uh, obviously that's where we're going to head to right away is this is an ongoing situation. Where are we at exactly right now with the Miami Marlins? Yeah, you know, um, I don't really have any additional information beyond the press releases you guys have seen. Obviously we saw that the Marlins-Orioles game was canceled, uh, postponed for tonight and that the Yankees and Phillies was as well due to the Marlins using that clubhouse and you know, obviously my biggest concern is just that all of those players and individuals that we have been seeing have tested positive, that they're okay, that they're asymptomatic, and hopefully that everything does end up okay, but obviously not not ideal. Yes, sir. So I think the biggest question on everybody's mind, uh, certainly mine, is was ba- Major League Baseball ready for something like this? And you look at the protocols, you look at the decision by both sides, predominantly the players do not have a bubble to play in and the very first weekend of baseball gets put in the books and we're looking at an outbreak with the Marlins and we're not sure where else it's going to be headed we have a couple other tests that popped up positive uh, throughout the league but in your opinion should could Major League Baseball have done something a little different you know honestly I feel like everybody has become like a cottage infectious disease expert in these days and the truth <laughs> is that none of us really know you know and I, I'm not sure I really feel comfortable saying whether they could have or could not have because I just don't know enough about how all of this works I can say that the protocols that were in place everything we read about that very long guide I mean it seems like a lot and I think that you know ultimately it's really hard to know what else might have been done or what could have been done i don't even know what kinds of options would be out there and the truth is it is a virus right it is there and it wasn't going to go away so it was just a question of you know how to play while it is ongoing sarah going back when the negotiations were happening in mlb and mlb pa you know the the option was thrown out there of possibly doing a bubble and the players really weren't on board with that and there were a lot of question marks thrown into that but with that kind of in hindsight now and looking at the nba and nhl who are doing the bubble and they've had zero positive tests do you think that major league baseball and the players association might look back on that and say boy maybe we should have did the bubble you know, I, I'm not really sure. I certainly can't can't speak for them or anything, but I will say that baseball was in a very different spot than those sports, right? Those sports were in a situation where they had to finish up a regular season, figure out some seating, and then move to a postseason. Baseball was trying to do an entire season and postseason. Obviously, we got to a point where that ended up shortened, but I think that it's a very different ask to ask these people, these players, coaches, everybody else to go and isolate themselves away from their families for so long to play the entire season and postseason. I think that it's very different when you're some of the teams aren't even part of it in the NHL and NBA and where you're going to be moving to a situation where teams are going to be eliminated relatively soon. So I, I do think it's it's just different and it's just the calendar. You know, it's nobody's fault. It's nothing like that. It just is where we were in March and what where we happen to be with all of these different seasons. Talking to Sarah Langs, MLB re- reporter for MLB.com on Twitter at S Langs on sports, Sarah, where does baseball go from here? Meaning, you know, the Marlins right now games postponed. I'm just wondering how they navigate through this. Does the entire taxi squad get called in for 
the rest of the games. I mean, just technically, I believe, and again, I'm I'm no expert, right? Is they're supposed to quarantine after this, which would certainly affect baseball's plan to play almost every single day throughout the season. What's next for baseball? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I'm sure we'll have a better idea in the next few hours. I mean, news has been breaking so quickly already this morning, and I'm sure it will continue to. But I do think there are some really interesting logistical questions with just simply fielding a team for the Marlins. We know, as you mentioned, quarantine, all of the different requirements. And uh, Major League Baseball has in place that you need two negative tests within at least 24 hours, I believe, in order to return. So figuring out exactly how to navigate that with the number of people that have been reported to have tested positive. I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, this is why there are taxi squads, I, I imagine, in part, is whether it's this or injuries or anything else. But I'm not I'm not really sure. But I, I would imagine we'll, we'll figure that out this afternoon somehow. Sarah, nobody's been under more scrutiny since the pandemic has hit in baseball than Rob Manfred from the conversations back and forth to baseball starting up. How much pressure do you feel like the MLB commissioner is under right now with all of this outbreak? Honestly, I mean, I think every commissioner has been under this kind of pressure since what was it, March 11th, the day that everything shut down. I mean, they're being forced to make these decisions that are both based on health, also money, and how the sports actually work and continue to function. And keeping players in mind, there are just so many different factors. And I know I remember, you know, Adam Silver being asked at one point whether a whole team having an outbreak would shut down their season and him not entirely being sure the answer to that as well. So I think that a lot of these commissioners are really in the same boat where it's it's just a lot. And honestly, I'm I, I feel for them because it just, it, I, I can't even imagine we've used the word unprecedented so many times in the last four or five months that it's almost lost its meaning, but it, it really applies in a situation like this. Again, talking with Sarah Langs, MLB reporter for MLB.com. Sarah, I want to shift the focus just a little bit here. We would be silly not to talk about our two birds on a bat, the St. Louis Cardinals, and, you know, your impressions of the Cardinals after the first week and what some of your takeaways are. Yeah, I had a lot of fun watching the Cardinals games this weekend. You know, I thought that Goldie looked pretty good. Really enjoyed that home run he hit on Saturday. High launch angle, hit off the big mass land sign. That's exactly what you want to be seeing from him. You know, Flaherty coming back, raring. I think he was a, you know, very uh, common sort of dark horse-ish Cy Young pick. Maybe even just normal Cy Young pick. But, you know, not Jacob deGrom is my point. Um and great to see him go out there seven innings. That's what you want to see. Two runs, that's okay. Team wins the game. And I, I think they're looking really good. I think that the entire story with baseball right now, at least on the field, is how knotted up all these teams are. We don't have a single team that's 3-0 and or 0-3. First time since the 1950s that we didn't have either of those. And those are in normal seasons, not even shortened seasons. So I think, you know, we're gearing up for a really exciting tenant race, you know, assuming all of this continues and the Cardinals seem to be right in it. Sarah, you mentioned Goldschmidt's home run, and I think in terms of Cardinals Nation before the season started and before the pandemic hit, the biggest question was offense and power for this baseball team after watching them last year. Uh, Your impressions of the fact that the Cardinals team hits four home runs in their first two games and they're scoring 15 runs in their first two games. Of course, Sunday didn't go that way, but the offense showed up a little bit. Yeah, you know, when I was making my preseason predictions, I was a little uncertain with them for exactly that reason. I thought, you know, the pitching seems like it's going to be there, but I wasn't 100% certain with the offense. But they certainly proved me wrong over those first few days, and it seems like they may continue to. And 
part of it may have been facing the Pirates, but you know what? In this schedule, they're going to face the Pirates a lot, so you can't even write that off as, oh, no, that's the only reason, and I don't think it was. I mean, these are good established players who they have hitting for them, getting these hits. It's great to see Dexter Fowler, you know, hitting that home run, hopefully get into a bit of a groove. He's had some streakiness just over his career, and Paul DeYoung, I mean, that's exactly what you're expecting out of him, and he's hitting like 400 right now. He's not going to continue that. We've joked about 400, I feel like, a lot over the last few weeks, but He's a good player, and I think that this could really be you know, even more of an offensive breakout for him. Yeah, Sarah, that's actually where I wanted to go was Paul DeYoung. And, you know, he had a great start, like he said, hitting 400. Obviously not going to keep that pace up, but is this a season where, you know, shortened season for sure, it's a big difference from 162 games. However, is this a season we could see Paul DeYoung being a consistent offensive factor for the St. Louis Cardinals? Yeah, I I definitely think so. I mean, I think he's been building there over the course of the last few years. And I I think that, you know, season starting in the middle of the year, it's already hot weather. There's no, none of those sort of early season, you know, not excuses, but different factors that we often consider. And I think that we could see him really get back to what he was in that, in that rookie year where he finished second rookie of the year, he hit 285. He hasn't quite gotten back there yet, but you know, counting stats notwithstanding, I think that he seems to be hitting the ball really well right now, and, you know, hopefully that continues. Sarah, thank you so much for your time here this morning. I know uh, Major League Baseball, a little chaotic right now with everything going on, but we sure do appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us, and hopefully when things get figured out a little bit down the road, you'll come back and join us again. Of course, I would absolutely love to, and thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks, All right, Sarah. thank you, Sarah. All right, that was Sarah Langs, MLB reporter for MLB.com. She had some good stuff there. Um, like she said, Alex, this is ongoing. Yeah. Uh, we're not sure exactly where it's all headed, but, uh, I guess we'll find out another sport that we're not sure what lies ahead of us, but we're excited is where our St. Louis blues are going up to Edmonton, Alberta to the bubble. And we're going to double down with another celebrity guest coming up here right now. We're back to the ribs and BK podcast on one Oh one ESPN. Welcome back to Ribs and BK. BK still out on special assignment, so I've got Alex Ferrario filling in for BK today. I am Jamie Rivers. We got T-Bone on the board. It is 11.32 a.m. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, unofficial licensed Rolex jeweler. Now, to go to the Celebrity Hotline, Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Hotline, joined by the one and only Mark Spector, senior columnist for Sportsnet.ca, on Twitter at Sportsnet Spec, Mark, how we doing today, bud? No, oh, doing all right. Getting ready to go up here in uh, one of the hub cities, and got about a thousand hockey people in my town here. So uh, sounds like I won't be getting out in the golf course anytime soon, huh? Yeah. <laughs> now that's actually where I, I uh, we've got to go with this. Is teams arriving? What mostly yesterday into the bubble, and I think we're learning. Uh, every hour that goes by, something a little unique about the bubble. But in, in your opinion, uh, start positively here that the NHL has, I believe, everybody has tested negative upon arrival to the bubbles. Am I correct with that? Yeah, that's the word they sent out today. And, you know, we all, the only sort of possible hole in this NHL return theory, and we've all been studying all the sports, and we see there's some holes out there, gentlemen. Uh, the hole in the, in the NHL series was phase three, when all the teams gathered in their own cities, you know, across North America, and they weren't in bubbles, right? They were going to practices, then they were all going home on their own recognizance, and 
we were hoping that, you know, the, the teams in the states that are really suffering particularly, you know, like in Arizona Coyotes or, uh, or Tampa or Florida or Dallas, we're hoping that that wouldn't be the phase that tripped up one of those teams. And we've got them here now in the bubble. Everybody was obviously responsible and they got here safely. And I honestly think that now that everyone's inside this bubble here, uh, you know, I don't want to jinx anything, but the chances of COVID taking over this thing have gone down quite a bit since everybody's arrived healthy here. Well, and that's where I was going to go next with it, Mark. Uh, just the confidence moving into this bubble now with teams there getting over that uh, that essential hump that NHL was going to have with the training camp. How positive are you that we are going to see this thing through and see a Stanley Cup champion? Well, I, I think it's pretty good. You know, I, I, I mean, I hope for the NHL and the fans of the NHL that we pull this thing off. It would be catastrophic to see it have to stop halfway like we might be looking at with baseball here. Um, but, you know, I mean, the only threats here are, you know, some guy leaving the bubble and going out to a bar or something. That's, that's an offense that could be met with expulsion from the playoffs. I just don't see it happening. Um, more so, you know, people who work in the hotels, right, they do go home at night. And then they come back and they get tested before they go to work here. Um, you know, the fact that the NHL was wise enough to, uh, under some pressure, you know, they were pressured. They wanted to go to at least one American market, guys. But the fact that they, they said, no, we're going up to Edmonton and Toronto and, and the COVID numbers here in northern Alberta are, are really, really, you know, small. So the chance, let's say we were in Dallas right now, the chance of that restaurant worker showing up and infecting people in Edmonton is a heck of a lot less here. So I like the chances. I think they've got them safely in a bubble. And uh, I know that they're, the screws are down in that bubble. Like no one is getting out and no one's coming in. Mark, I want to dive into some of the matchups a little bit because this is going to be obviously a unique tournament slash playoffs that we're dealing with this year. And let's isolate the Western Conference. For you, obviously an Edmonton guy, the Oilers' big matchup against the Blackhawks. What's intriguing to you about some of the playoff series, the ones that are the play-in series, that, you know, there's maybe some storylines here that could pop up or maybe we might have a couple upsets. Anything that jumps off the page at you? Well, it's kind of funny because my theory when picking, every time the playoffs start, my boss phones and says, hey, everyone's boss in our business, right? Hey, pick your <laughs> pick the eight series. And I always say that you better pick at least two upsets in the first round. And most often there's three or four. So does the qualifying round count as that now, gentlemen? Is it, do we expect in, in eight series in the qualifying round, of, should I be picking two upsets? I'm not sure. You know, I, I can't see a 12th place Chicago Blackhawks team that gives up the most chances in the National Hockey League who traded away Robin Leonard and their other goalie, Corey Crawford, has barely practiced. I just cannot see that team beating the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I can't, see, I can't see the 12th place Montreal Canadiens knocking off Pittsburgh. I just can't see it. So, you know, maybe in the middle parts, like Winnipeg plays Calgary out here. And uh, that's going to be a good series. Winnipeg's a way better team. I know folks in St. Louis see them a fair bit, but Winnipeg's a better. They, they played an unhealthy, beat-up lineup all year, and now they're real healthy, and they're really, really good. I would fear Winnipeg, whoever was playing them. So let's see. It, it, I'm kind of intrigued to see if we get our first-round upsets here in the qualifying round, and then in the next round, are we going to get more upsets? 
I don't know. This whole thing's new for all of us. Well, and that's where I was going to go with this one next, Mark, because when you look at the four teams that are just doing the round robin, now they have a little bit of an advantage because they're going to be playing essentially four games before their real you know, lives depend on staying in the bubble or not for a chance at the Stanley Cup. So of the four teams, meaning the Blues, Avalanche, Golden Knights, and Stars, who do you feel like is more likely to be upset in that uh, first round? And please be careful with your answer. <laughs> Trent Lightly. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, no, I, listen, you won't find a Canadian that looks at the St. Louis Blues and sees them as an easy mark here. Like they're, you know, obviously they won the cup and they're just, a, they were first place again. And they're a really, really, really good team. They may get upset, gentlemen, but that's probably the series that I will pick incorrectly. How about that? Um, you know, the team, I think the team that, that, that I would say might be in the toughest spot might be a team like Dallas. Uh, you know, I don't know. Is there an advantage? Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Don't the, there's four teams that get the bye. Don't they just play three games? Don't they all play each other once? Yeah, they do. They get one exhibition game, and then, and then they roll round into round. the the round robin. So yeah, three round robin games. Okay, so they'll get their three round robins, and everyone gets an exhibition. So you know, I'll be interested to see those three round robins. Like, there's no way they're contested at the same level that the qualifying series are contested at, right? Like, you just can't match the emotion when the result really doesn't matter. It's not do or die. You know, you could lose all four games and you're still going to the next round or all three games. So I guess for me will be the team coming out of the qualifying will have played some do or die hockey here. And they will have an advantage on the, you know, game one of the series after that, the other team's going to keep the St. Louis's, Dallas, Colorado. They're going to catch up here. But, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, if, if I was sitting, if, if I was a better, I might go to Vegas and I might bet the qualifying team in, this, in the first round. I might bet them in game one in every series because I think they're going to have an advantage. Talking with Mark Spector, senior columnist for Sportsnet.ca, on Twitter at Sportsnet Spec. Mark, with that being said, do you feel like the team that has, you know, in the situation, I guess, like the Blues that are all familiar with each other, don't have a lot of turnover, and then their coach has that uh, that mindset implanted into these guys, do you feel like the coaching staff and that roster is going to be an advantage for a team once that 16-team playoff format opens up? Oh, yeah. Listen, what the Blues went through last year, uh, no one else has that, right? You know, and every year, remember this, guys. Like, let's say, who won the year before? Washington Capitals. Um, that team's been split up a little. They got all their main guys, and they know how to win. Don't get me wrong. But the team that won last year and is largely together again, uh, they get to skip a whole bunch of steps of, you know, of those. I mean, Jamie, you'd know this. Uh, just the little intangible things that help you win when the chips are down, man. When you know, I was going to say in, in May and June, but I guess this month or this year, <laughs> July and, or August and September, um, those St. Louis Blues have something no one else has. And, and it's, you know, they earned it, right? They earned it by winning last year. So, yeah, Craig Berube doesn't have to say certain things. He doesn't have to explain certain situations because it's all muscle memory for these guys. They know in a in game what's needed, when it's needed, who needs to do it. So for sure, it's St. Louis earned an advantage by winning the cup last year, and they take that advantage in the playoffs this year. There's no question about that. 
All right, Mark, we know how hard it is to repeat, especially in the salary salary cap era. Now, the Blues have a good chance at that, and obviously here in St. Louis, we're pulling for them. The question I have for you, and it, it kind of struck a chord with me over the weekend, is if the St. Louis Blues are able to repeat, will it be based upon the excellent play of their veteran guys that have continued to bring it night in and night out, or will it be because some young guys have stepped up and added to their game and really brought it to a new level to push the Blues through? Yeah, I think that you, uh, history tells us that every year that a team wins, and I'll go back to dynasty teams like the Oilers or the New York Islanders, you know, the base, you know, we know who the, the who sets the template in in St. Louis, right? You know, it's Petrangelo, it's Pareko, it's, it's Tarasenko, it's O'Reilly, it's, you know, the, the we all know who the leaders are there. But every time that a team wins again, it's because there's a new wave that comes. You know, I remember the Oilers won a Stanley Cup back in 1990, and they weren't supposed to win. They'd won four in five years or six years, and no one thought they'd win. And the major reason they won was a line of these young guys named Adam Graves and Martin Jelen and Joe Murphy. And someone on among the younger, less expected people on that St. Louis Blues lineup is going to have a hell of a playoff if they're holding the Stanley Cup two and a half months from now. We're going to look back on a line and we're going to go, whew, we didn't think that line could do it. Or look at that defenseman. They had a bunch of injuries and this kid came out of nowhere and gave us 18 solid minutes a night. Uh, I would be surprised if... You know, if they just played it out exactly as they did last year, and O'Reilly wins the Smite and Petrangelo's, you know, their best defenseman every night, and Bennington's as good as he was this year as he was last, something's got to be different, right? It just, the book never seems to read the same way one spring after the next, does it? No, exactly. It's always a different story every time. So, Mark, I can't thank you enough for joining us here on Monday morning talking about our Edmonton bubble and the Western Conference. Uh, if you can, please go follow him at Sportsnet Spec on Twitter. Mark, thanks a lot for joining us today, man. All right, boys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mark. All right. Well, you heard it there, Ferrario. There's going to be a lot going on, but certainly Mark Spector thinks the young guys are going to be the, the piece of the puzzle that the Blues need to potentially repeat. Well, look at their young guys being a Sunquist, Sanford, Blay, Thomas, Pareko, all of these young players who have been very effective in the regular season compared to other teams that have young players that haven't really set their mark as much as these young guys have. So I, that's the most exciting part for me is who is going to be a hero when you have 100% health on your entire roster. Going to be exciting. You know what else is exciting? Questions and answers, oh, baby. baby. You've got questions. We'll have, I don't know, our answers anyways. Get on the text line, 65780, the Air Comfort Service text line. Text us in some questions. We'll do our best to answer them, and we'll get to that right after the break. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe? Text now, 65780. It's Ribs and BK's Questions and Answers on 101 ESPN. All right, Ribs and BK, back at you here. Wait, oh, BK's not here. We've got Alex Ferrario subbing in for BK, who is a special assignment. We sent him away to uh, get a weekend of relaxation 
so he can reboot the engine and get back here with us tomorrow. We've got T-Bone Tanner on the board. It is time for questions and answers. Please, 65780, Air Comfort Service text line. Guys, what do you think the odds are that the NHL can get through the first round of everything without a positive COVID test? 100%. I wow. say a hundred percent. I agree. I agree exactly with Mark Spector said uh, in our previous segment. Your biggest hurdle was training camp because these guys are going to training camp around players, but then they're going home. They're still going to the grocery store. They're still going out to dinner if they're doing that. They're not quarantining. You're going to a site now where you had zero positive tests from all of these teams. Where there are how big are these fences, Rivs? Thirty feet fences around Edmonton. <laughs> they look intimidating. Like they built a wall around Edmonton in these bubbles. So <laughs> you got through the biggest hurdle with zero positive tests, and now you're in the bubble. So as long as these tests go okay, which from the NHL's perspective it has, hundred percent we get through. That I don't think it's the first round. I think we get through this whole thing Ooh. without an issue. I'm not 100% sold yet. <laughs> Come I'm, on, T-Bone. I'm going to have the high percentage. I'm going 75%, and my main concern is just the fact of, look at the NBA. The NBA's got the bubble. Well, there's and, no strip clubs in Edmonton that you can go get buffalo wings Okay, at. but the, the players well, may still. <laughs> there might be. Never mind. The players still may want to go out and get a meal somewhere else, or they may want to go do something else. Or even, guys, if they leave, like Barbershop, he's going to have uh, the kid, if I'm not mistaken, once they're in the bubble. Mm-hmm. He leaves, comes back. Who knows what he does when he goes back home? That's where I'm a little skeptical. Okay, so here's where I'm at on this is um, hockey players are a different breed. And I say that obviously because I've lived the experience and I'm still a hockey player. Uh, not a very good one, but still I try oh, hard. Come okay. On now. Um, Did you see that deke in that? That was pretty impressive, a, right? Well, but, but here's the thing, right? When you're a skills coach, you should probably have a few skills. Eh, anyways, okay, back on true. topic. Sorry. I do think the NHL will do a great job at this. And to your point, T-Bone, I do think the first round, though, I think it'll be 100%. Because I don't think guys will get sick of the bubble that quickly. I think they'll be committed to it. And just like Major League Baseball, where I've said, I'm worried about week two, week three, week four. That's where my, you know, my pause for concern will will start is two, three weeks in. What are some of these young guys doing? What? What does the bubble look like to them? Are they sick of it? Do they want to get something different to eat? Do they want to go see a buddy? Do they want to see a girl or whatever, right? If they just want to go and get a beer, things could get a little uh, a little offside at that point. From Pardon the, six, the pun. From the 618, they're following up saying, what about the people that work in the bubble? If I'm not mistaken, those people that work in the restaurants and the hotels they are being tested as well before and after they come to work. So yeah. before they come in the building, you're tested. And before you leave the building, you're tested. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And that was the biggest concern, I think, for these bubble uh, communities, as we'll call them, was, you know, what about the workers? The people that come in there every day, are they going to have to be in that bubble 24-7? Well, they're not, which does, you know, it, it is concerning to a, a certain point. But to my knowledge and to what Mark Spector just alluded to as well, was that uh, they're being tested every day. So they leave, they go home, they come back in the morning, they're tested. Not a perfect situation, but still NHL doing their due diligence. So this morning we've been talking a lot about the Miami Marlins and the outbreak that they have. 13 positive tests so far could continue to grow as more testing goes along. At what point would the MLB consider removing them from the season like the MLS did with two soccer clubs? See, I don't think that's even an option. Okay, and hear me out here. One, I think you got to plow through this. 
I do. I don't think baseball can shut down, and I could be crazy, and I might just be that guy that Major League Baseball is like, oh, my God, what is he thinking? No, you plow through. And correct me if I'm wrong, guys. This is why they had the taxi squad, right? Like, I know that it's not going to be your best players. It's not going to be your exact team. And I know the joke, easy, really quickly, here's, well, the Marlins aren't very good anyways, right? Well, they're 2-1. and one. But... They do have professional baseball players that operate at a high level. And your minor league guys, your taxi squad guys, or even guys like Danny Mack alluded to before we started the crossover, sign guys that are sitting at home, that are in shape, that can that have Major League Baseball innings uh, under their belt. So I think we go to the taxi squad. Even as ugly as that might get for that team, you ha- it's not about that team. You have to keep this thing moving forward. And if that means you're getting replacement players to carry out the schedule for the Marlins, you got to do it for the integrity of this season of whatever integrity there is to this 2020 season. Yeah, I'm the same on that. You can't just eliminate the Miami Marlins from play right now because there are options. You do have this taxi squad, which I think that's what Miami's trying to accomplish right now. Like you're quarantining yourselves in Philadelphia so you can figure out who has the virus and who's positive, who's negative, so that you can form a team with this taxi squad. But you can't just pull these guys away and say, okay, well, Miami's out because if you're going to do that with one team, you're going to have to do that with the NL East and then the AL East and then you're going to have to start considering dropping everybody out and postponing the season so I don't foresee that happening um, at least with the Miami Marlins situation I see the taxi squad being utilized uh, for Miami Philadelphia and the other teams that might have some positive tests on them now here's the ugly thing with the taxi squad too if I'm not mistaken so for the Cardinals for example I know they had one pitcher on the taxi squad this last series against Pittsburgh and they had a fourth catcher on the taxi squad they're not on the 40-man roster. If they have to play, they have to be put on the 40-man mm-hmm. roster. If you're the Marlins, you're looking at DFAing guys that are quality players you want to see, or you're starting the clock on players. That's where this gets ugly for the Major League Baseball. Or you put them on long-term injured list and then you wipe them out for too. the season. But there, there's the thing, though. Are they going to be done for a season? I, to me, the the thing MLB is going to have to do if they want to avoid that situation is they're going to have to change some of these rules for the 40-man. Maybe expand the 40-man. I know the season started, but... I mean, you look at the Cardinals, Carlson's not on the 40-man roster. You'd have to DFA someone, or in this case, the Cardinals could move Brevia to the 60-day because they have that spot open. Mm-hmm. But if you're the Cardinals and you had four guys test positive and you wanted to bring people up, like, let's say, uh, John Naga- was it Nagowski, mm-hmm. you'd have to put him on the 40-man, DFA someone. It's an ugly spot for baseball, and they have to figure something out to deal with it. Well, I think they should, though. I mean, look look at what the NHL and the NBA has implemented, Rivs. I mean, they've put punishment for these players. I mean, Lou Williams, who I know we'll talk about at some point later on today, uh, he went out and got wings at a strip club, and now he's quarantining himself for 10 days. They're good wings, Alex. Okay, well, uh, that's going to be another discussion we'll have to get into. But the NHL has said... <laughs> Look, if you if you go outside of the bubble and test positive, you're kicked out of the bubble. You don't have a shot at the Stanley Cup anymore, and a team is going to be fined and have draft picks taken away. So I think if it gets to that, then, yeah, look, if players are going to start testing positive and going outside of the restrictions that MLB has put out there for you, you should be placed on the 60-day IL, and you shouldn't be a part of the team anymore the rest of the season. The NHL has put up big fences. They've put up these massive things to block out the view to their bubbles in Edmonton and Toronto. They have certain protocols that are in place. Then they do have the employees being tested once a day. But we'll talk about that a little bit more here as we get joined by Daniel Nugent Bowman here. He is... A uh, cover for the Athletic, sorry, rather. I need to jumble up something here somewhere. He covers the Edmonton Oilers for the Athletic, and he wrote a couple of great pieces 
on what life in the bubble is going to be like and what some of those protocols are. And guess what? We'll get to him after the break. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. All right, Ribs and BK back with you here. Actually, it's Ribs and Alex Ferrario. BK on his way back to St. Louis. He'll be with us tomorrow. We got T-Bone on the board for us. And now we go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. And I'm really, really excited to talk to our next guest, Daniel Nugent Bowman. He covers the Edmonton Oilers for The Athletic on Twitter at DNB Sports. Wrote an incredible article about inside the bubble. So, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Pleasure to talk to you guys. All right, Daniel. We're all like watching and looking for pictures and video. It's crazy how we all want to see what this bubble looks like. And so I'm watching a video last night and I see the bus pull up to, you know, the outside of the bubble. And just like it's at a Hollywood movie, the gate opens up, the bus goes in, the gate closes behind them. Can you give us some of the details of what the NHL has done in both of these bubble cities to make sure that they've created a spot where the players can be safe and that they're limiting, oh, drifting inside or outside the bubble. You're making it sound like the Wizard of Oz. Or something. <laughs> uh, That's what it kind of reminded me of, though. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's a, it's an interesting concept, right? I mean, uh, it's a little bit different than obviously what's going on in the NBA, where it's uh, you know everyone's in the in the same location. Obviously, we're we're split into two here in the NHL with uh, with Edmonton and, and Toronto. But yeah, I mean, in Edmonton specifically, I mean there there are um, the you know two hotels uh, for. Uh, the like the, the the various teams and players. Uh, so the top six by point, points percentage are in the, the nicer hotels. So that includes uh, the, the local Oilers and the Blues, um, uh, and so they're kind of uh, in a quote unquote better spot. But um, you know, in terms of you know how it's all set up, I mean the, the activities uh, for players is you know basketball uh, courts, uh, nets rather, um, you know pool and and. and Speaking of billiards, rather and, and table tennis and stuff, a lot of that is is kind of either in the, the Marriott Hotel, the, the main one, or at the the arena uh, in the area, um, just kind of on the the south end of the arena, uh, where players can congregate. Now they're not supposed to be doing that for the first five days of of, of being here to kind of make sure things are okay on the on the COVID nineteen front. But the the point is obviously that they're trying to create. The safe spots for players they're not supposed to be going outside of these bubbles and they're, they're barred from going outside of the bubble um you know there will be uh, later on kind of golfing and and other types of excursions that would be planned and coordinated through the nhl but uh they're trying to obviously keep this as secure as possible not allowing people in and and hopefully in doing so would allow the tournament to, to uh, comp- uh you know to k- take part or to you know go on and complete uh, successfully so, Daniel, from what I'm understanding, once you're inside this bubble, this is daily testing, and it's not just for players and coaches. It's for pretty much everybody that's a part of this bubble, whether it be the the officials and the linesmen or restaurant workers or people that will be working on the golf course. If you're a part of this NHL bubble, you are going to be regularly tested to make sure that everything is safe. That's right. I mean, they have uh, five different categories, and, and every one of the top four categories uh, gets tested daily. So there's, uh, they showed in the video uh, last week uh, that there's kind of like a, a line kind of booth or uh, 
uh, kind of like what you'd see at an airport. You get lined up and, and you, you get tested. Uh, so that takes place every day. And you're right, it's, it's everyone who could come in contact with the players. So, you know, we're talking people that work in the hotels, uh, uh, as you mentioned, officials, linesmen, uh, NHL personnel, really anyone that, again, could come in contact with them. So that fifth group uh, is media, which, you know, as, as people have talked about quite extensively um we're not coming in contact with with the players um we uh, you know are doing uh videos via you know zoom and, and videos and stuff like that so um we will not come in contact with them so we get our temperatures you know checked uh daily as we we enter the room and or at the arena rather um but uh you know the, in that group there's people like fire marshals and, and you know just people on the the periphery but anyone that could come in contact with the players gets tested daily to to kind of ensure uh, as best as possible that, uh, you know, nobody has COVID-19. We're chatting with Daniel Nugent Bowman. He covers the Edmonton Oilers for The Athletic on Twitter at DNB Sports. Daniel, my question here is I'm watching or going through your article, which is incredible, by the way, inside the bubble. We talk about security. And there is this perimeter that they've put up, the big fence, and they have 135 people that are supposed to be patrolling the perimeter or the borders of this thing. My question more <laughs> lies into what are some of the punishments that the NHL and the teams are proposing for players that, you know, want to scale the fence or have somebody scale the fence and and break this, this bubble? Uh, what are some of the penalties we're looking at or have they even been discussed yet? Well, these are the guards that, that, that you know, like Wizard of Oz, right? And the, the, the flying <laughs> monkeys will come and get them. That's right. No, um, <laughs> no I mean, like, uh, Gary Bettman has, has really put his foot down, or so he says, uh, in these various calls. I mean, we're talking about ma- massive fines, uh, you know, potential loss of draft picks, things of that nature for uh, teams, players that are trying to, to get out uh, and, you know, see the see the, uh, the outside of the bubble. But, yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, they're – it's really to encompass uh, the area around the arena, uh, the area around the hotels. And so in Edmonton, there are um, two other hotels, as I mentioned, kind of the bottom six, uh, quote-unquote, teams that uh, uh, are at kind of a secondary hotel. It's like a two-, three-minute walk. Um, but, you know, they're, they've tried to, uh, or they have uh, made kind of a, um, a secure, like, uh, fenced-in path for, for people to, uh, to, to walk between the hotels um, <clears throat> buses uh, are being provided if you know for for those maybe that are um, you know have mobility issues or it's an incredibly hot day or whatever. Um, so they're they're trying to obviously make that safe. Um, really, there's not especially early on in the tournament. Uh, you know they're not having these excursions. There's there's not really a need or a want I would think to to get out of the bubble. Um, you know it, obviously it's it's kind of a bizarre. Uh, set of circumstances here. The, the one thing I will note, though, is uh, practices uh, are taking place about 25 minutes uh, southwest of where the main rink is. So again, players are being bussed. Uh, there are a lot of you know protocols and um, and you know health provisions in place to make sure that the arena is uh, pro- properly sanitized before and after. Uh, it's this this arena uh, is a public uh, facility, a four pad facility. Um, and it also has a, you know, a gym and a, you know, a swimming pool, uh, that is open to the public right now, but the players and the teams, you know, are, are getting, uh, their own secure access and will not, uh, are not supposed to be, uh, coming in contact with the public. So again, trying to make this as safe as possible to ensure this goes on, uh, as it is supposed to. 
You know, Daniel, uh, hosting a radio show with a former NHL superstar like Jamie Rivers, we have plenty of <laughs> NHL conversations. And the one that, that, that has been brought up between both of us is how these ice conditions are going to, to stand pat. Because if I'm not mistaken, these guys are practicing 24-7, like around the clock. You're going to have a different team on the ice skating with not much cleanup time. And, and then I saw a report earlier today that there's going to be 66 minutes of cleaning up the ice and readying it from one game to the other. So yeah. kind of two questions for you you know how are these ice conditions going to hold up and the follow-up to that also is what are these practice timings look like for teams well it's a good question and i, and I think you know we, we generally hear uh, complaints about ice uh, in the playoffs as it goes on especially in, in southern uh, locations and i know people have uh you know a, a lot of times people have uh, these visions of edmonton being uh you know minus 40 throughout the year but uh you know in the summer it's <laughs> The summer it is uh, it is pretty temperate, so um, I think that will be an issue. You know, especially having as many as three games at the uh, at the rink in a, in a given day. Um, so <laughs> I, th- I think that'll be a, a talking point as we go on here. Um, well, especially the first month. I mean, it's, it's August, and I think you know once we get to September, uh, a couple of years ago we did we did have snow a couple of days after Labor Day. So uh, <laughs> you know things can change, but. I think in August it will be a talking point. But again, a lot of the practices, uh, none of the practices are taking place at the rink uh, that the Oilers play at. They have a what's called a downtown community rink, which is um, connected. Uh, it's within the same building as the, the Oilers' main rink. And, uh, so I, as I understand, that's where most of the pregame skates will take place, um, especially kind of later on. Um, of course, with, with games being you know, taking place throughout the course of the day. It's really that night game that teams will probably want to only do the pregame skate. And then most of the practices, again, will be at that rink uh, or the four rinks, rather, uh, in the community center, uh, about 25 minutes southwest of the city, as I mentioned earlier. So they're trying to mitigate that. You know, in Toronto, um, most of, or I think all of the uh, the practices are taking place at the Leafs practice facility, which is about 15, 20-minute drive away from uh, where the Leafs play. So, uh, yeah, they're trying to keep as much, uh, you know, keep the, the main ice for games. But again, you know, when they're, they're playing that often and, and you mentioned the turnaround time there, I'm sure that will be a, a, a talking point, um, you know, as these games go on here. Daniel, great stuff. Love the information. We thank you so much for joining us today and shedding some light on uh, the wonderful world of Oz that we'll call Edmonton's bubble (laughs) up north there. But uh, thanks again for joining us. And as we get deeper here, we might uh, hit you back up again to talk about some of this stuff. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure doing it, and I hope you guys are well, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks a lot, Daniel. All right, that was Daniel Nugent Bowman. He covers the Oilers for The Athletic. A couple of incredible pieces. Go check him out, and you can find him on Twitter, at DNB Sports. We're going to bounce back here, and I know we haven't really dove into the Cardinals yet. We have a lot of other stuff going on. I mean, it's just that basically my radio ADD is what's going on here, but we're going to bounce back with the Cardinals. We're going to talk about their offense maybe some of the lack of offense, but I certainly want to dive into what we just saw over the weekend and maybe if it's a predictor for what we're looking at in the future. So bouncing back after the break with some Cardinals. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Ribs and BK here, joined by Alex Ferrario, who is pinch hitting for... Brandon Kylie today, who's out on special assignment. We've got T-Bone working the board. 
I wanted to talk to you guys about the Cardinals' offense. And again, 65780, the Air Comfort Service text line. I want to hear from you guys, too. I want to hear uh, what you thought of the weekend, what you thought of the Cardinals' offense, what was good, what was bad, what was surprising. And, Alex, that's kind of where I want to go with this, is you look at the Cardinals' roster, and the bottom of the order participated pretty good. First couple of games looked pretty strong, kind of disappeared in Game 3. The infield, the bats were cracking for the Mm -hmm. infield and the outfield relatively quiet, which I don't know if I expected that totally. Obviously, you got Goldie and you got DeYoung in the infield, but they got a lot of pinch uh, or they got a lot of big hits from Mm -hmm. Colton Wong, Tommy Edmonds, Tommy Edmond. I just was a little surprised. So as we break down the Cardinals offense, we look to the future, right? Because that's what we do. Criticize the past and we look to the future. What for you this weekend stood out the most? Well, I'll give you the bad and I'll give you the good. Let's start with the good because I like being optimistic optimistic on a Monday, Ribs, especially with all the negativity we've started with. <laughs> uh, the, the power's there. And I texted you this last night when we were kind of going over our thoughts saying everyone was talking about Jeff Albert this offseason, right? I specifically remember sitting with Stalter almost every day and the text line was like, oh, you need to get rid of Jeff Albert and get a better batting coach. He showed up. Or his expertise, his work showed up because look at the home runs they hit. Cardinals were the only team on Friday to hit three home runs in a game. And you got a home run from Fowler, from O'Neill, and DeYoung. Who Two, predicted that O'Neill would get a home run, by the way? Who predicted that O'Neill would get a home run on his first at-bat? Yeah, I don't know. That's right. Jamie Baseball Rivers genius. Did. That's right. That's right, BK. <laughs> Be ready when you come back, buddy. No, so the offense is there. And look, you hit five home runs over the week. Now, Sunday went a little quiet against you, but that's the Cardinals' mantra against a pitcher that they don't know anything about they usually struggle with. But to hit five home runs in two games, the offense was there. The running was really good as well. That base running, that speed is there for Mike Schilt like we're used to seeing. Here's the bad, though. Matt Carpenter and Harrison Bader. Mm. And I hate singling people out, but... Unfortunately, Matt Carpenter just wasn't the Matt Carpenter we saw in training camp 2.0. I mean, his at-bats were off a little bit. He wasn't really hitting the ball hard. He was striking out here and there as the DH, and Harrison Bader went 0 for 5 in two games. I mean, he was set, and we talked last week how long those leashes are going to look like, Rivs. It was two games before Lane Thomas got that start with Harrison Bader going 0 for 5 with three strikeouts. So you got production from some guys that I don't know if you expected production from and O'Neill and Fowler, but two guys that you need production from didn't produce for you. And that's the bad in my eyes. Okay. So let's isolate two of the guys that did produce. Okay. Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah. Everybody talked about, well, it wasn't a Goldie type year last year. He was good, but it wasn't Goldie, you know? And then Paul DeYoung, he was out of the gates hard last year, all-star game representative for the Cardinals, and then the back end of the season, not that he fizzled, but it certainly didn't live up to the first half of the season. Those two guys, I want to isolate them. In your opinion, Alex, Goldie, his swing looked fantastic. Yeah, And I'm look, I'm no baseball expert. I'm no swing coach or anything like that, but Paul Goldschmidt looked really, really comfortable, and Paul DeYoung, to me, looked like he could do this all year. Paul DeYoung looked like an MVP to me. I mean, when you talk about MVP caliber players, Paul DeYoung is that guy on this roster for how good that he looked for the team. His at-bats were strong. His uh, his pitch recognition was strong, and the same can be said for Paul Goldschmidt. And what did we talk about going into this season, Rivs? You gotta have that 3-4 spot ready to go, and Paul Goldschmidt, Paul DeYoung delivered with home runs, with on bases, with hard hit balls. They were the producers for Mike Schilt. And look, you got to get guys around that, too. And when you're getting people on base with Colton Wong and Tommy Edmond, 
they can produce. When you're getting them on, you got to get guys behind them that can produce, like a Yadier Molina, like a Dexter Fowler, and like a Tyler O'Neill. Matt Carpenter? Matt Carpenter didn't. He oh. had, I was watching the game yesterday with Danny Mack and BT on the call. There was a, it was in the fifth or the sixth inning when they had runners at second and third base with nobody out. And Carpenter struck out. That's that's those momentum mm-hmm. killers that you can't have right now. So that's the frustrating part. But you look at what Paul Goldschmidt and Paul DeYoung can deliver. And look, it's early. And we always say that in baseball. It's hard to say early with only 60 games. But it is early. So you hope that that can change. But with those two producing, you give yourself a chance, which is important. And, you know, I, with Paul Goldschmidt, what was good to see, and I know it was the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I know it's only three games, but... Paul Goldschmidt, historically known for slow starts. When he was with Arizona, had a lot of slow starts and then would really pick it up in the second half of the year. Well, you don't have that this year. And if Goldschmidt struggles, what do you do at first? And especially if Carpenter's not hitting the ball like you just mentioned, Alex, who's your first baseman? Ravello? You're not going to bench Goldschmidt. So mm-hmm. it's a good thing to see how he's doing. Now, the thing I'm looking for is the next five road games is because I'm more interested to see how they perform against the uh, Minnesota Twins. And they're going to see what I would call a junk throwing lefty and Rich Hill, who just spins the ball up there. Historically, Cardinals have always struggled with lefties that just throw curveballs. Look at Zach Duke when he was with the Pirates. The Cardinals struggled to hit Zach Duke. I'm interested to see how they perform in these next five games and if Goldschmidt and DeYoung play well and also see if Lane Thomas can produce, O'Neill can produce. That's where I'll be interested to see where this Cardinals team is. And I honestly believe the next five games, we'll know what this Cardinals offense is made of. Here's my question to you guys is, what do you do about your five, six, seven in the order? Because right now, to your point, Alex, Wong and Edmund, they're the guys that are going to get on base, at least in my opinion, on a pretty regular basis. You got Goldie, you got DeYoung, then you have a drop off, mm-hmm. right? Like you end up with Matt Carpenter in the DH position. I know the text line has jumped up a little bit and said, you know, how long till this Carpenter experiment is over in? It is a shortened season. This is going to be really tough for Mike Schilt because he's going to have to produce runs. The team, rather, is going to have to produce runs in the 5, 6, 7, 8. The bottom of the order mm-hmm. is going to be the difference maker when you're head-to-head with some of the other big dogs in the National League. And if you're not getting on base or you're not able to push Goldschmidt and DeYoung in when they're hitting the ball well or producing, then you're going to fail. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 I guess my question to you guys is where do they go from here? Elaine Thomas made an appearance Dylan Carlson, certainly the hot topic, and we're wondering when we're going to see him. But as it sits, guys, how do we fix the five, six, seven spots in the lineup? Well, look, I mean, Lane Thomas went 0 for 2 with a walk and a strikeout yesterday. So he didn't set the world on fire, no, but he got terrible. on base more yeah. than what Harrison Bader did. So it's a, it's an effect. What I would be interested to see what Mike Schilt does, and this will kind of have be a telltale sign on Tuesday if he does it, is give Matt Carpenter a shot at the leadoff position. I mean, look, you're all about body language and kind of looking yeah. at him, Rivs, and you spoke about this in training camp. He didn't have that same body language in these first three games against Pittsburgh. He was trying to be the Matt Carpenter of old. He's trying to pull everything. To, I'm watching this yeah. guy, and I'm like, what are you doing, Carp? He's pulling uppercut swings on balls. He's trying to go distant. And part of me wonders, and this will be interesting, maybe the crossover or in the fast lane, let we get BT's perspective from this. But I wonder if that success of hitting those home runs those last couple of games in training camp gave Carpenter a, oh, I can do this now. If you could get back to the doubles hitting Carpenter, the contact hitting Carpenter, he is going to benefit your team. 
So going back to my point, I'd be interested to, to see what happens if you give Carpenter a shot at that leadoff position. Look, Colton Long and Tommy Edmund are hitting the ball. You could put one of those in the two-hole and one of those in the five-hole. You get contact behind DeYoung and Goldschmidt with their power or their on-base percentages. You get one of those contact hitters up on top. If Carpenter can get on base, you're looking at your one through six that can start hitting the balls, and then you hope seven, eight, nine can produce. You know, I've never understood why the Cardinals pulled Carpenter from the leadoff spot. And I'm not I'm not just focusing on this year and last year because I know last year was a struggle for Carpenter, but baseball's an analytics game. And if you look at the analytics, and I know I talked about this a couple weeks ago with Randy and Michelle, his numbers are way better when he's in the leadoff spot. I mean, it's unbelievable. You look at him in the two, the three, the four, wherever else in the lineup, and it's the low 200s. In that leadoff spot, it's around 260, 270. It's like if it's an analytics game, and I thought this would change when Matheny was ousted as the Cardinals manager and they brought in Schilt, and Schilt's been wanting to focus on analytics more. To me, it doesn't make sense not to at least experiment with Carpenter leadoff spot. And Edmund didn't really do a lot in the two spot. So to me, bump Edmund down in the lineup, possibly solve that five, six, seven spot, add a little spark to the bottom of the lineup, that eight, nine, maybe your second leadoff guy. Put Carpenter at the one, experiment with it, and have Wong as the two. Why not? Wong had a good series. Two, three, four, Wong, Goldie, DeYoung. We were talking last night. They were the offense this weekend. I, I think the other thing, too, this hard, this offense is going to be exposed more moving forward. Look, the Pittsburgh Pirates aren't setting the world on fire with their pitching staff either. Like, Trevor Williams was good last year, but he wasn't great, and then, unfortunately, he struggled this year. Um I'd be curious because I think these guys who are struggling are going to be more exposed when you see a Minnesota Twins lineup, um, when you see a Milwaukee Brewers pitching staff, when you get to a Chicago Cubs pitching staff who their pitchers did very well in the first three games. That, to me, is the question that you asked to begin this, Rivs, of how long until you start to see more experimenting. If you get exposed more than one or two series against pitching staffs that are supposed to be more elite, then you're really going to have yourself an issue of, okay, do we throw a Dylan Carlson in here? Do we throw a Ravello in here to see if we can get some more power? You're going to have to start changing things up once you run into pitching staffs that are showing better numbers than what the Pittsburgh Pirates have. Guys, it's going to be interesting to watch. I know that's just a sample size this weekend, and I'm not ready to pull the leash back on some of these guys just yet. It'll be interesting to see how Mike Schilt Handles the it. text line just solved it for us, guys. I don't even know why I didn't think about this from the three one four. Carpenter just needs to shave his beard. He shave That's... his beard. Maybe he could cut it with uh, a John Deere product. Which, by the way, guys, Budweiser and John Deere having a lawn mower giveaway. Budweiser and one hundred one ESPN have teamed up for a one of a kind giveaway. I mean, who doesn't love John Deere mowers and beer? We're giving away a custom Budweiser branded John Deere riding lawnmower. Find the contest now on your 101 mobile app. Use the promo code BUD. Pretty simple for you to get entered. Must be 21 years of age or older to enter. See the full contest rules and more info now on your 101 ESPN mobile app or online at 101ESPN.com. Beer and John Deere, they rhyme. They go great together. Get on there and enter today. We're going to bounce back here in a couple of minutes and dive into more fun stuff. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Welcome back to Ribs and BK here. BK out on special assignment today. So I have got the one and only Alex Ferrario joining me today. And we've got T-Bone in the pit behind the board, helping us out with all the technical stuff that I have no idea about. (laughs) So boys, 
We've talked about the bubble in Edmonton. We've talked about a bunch of different protocols. And I think it's time we talk some blues hockey in depth here. And the biggest question I guess I have is, will one game be enough for Jordan Bennington to find his mojo? Right, like this is a position where if he fails, if any one team fails at the goaltender position, it's going to be detrimental to their success in the playoffs. And so now that Jordan Bennington is, you know, up in the bubble and doing what he does best and getting ready for the first exhibition game against the Chicago Blackhawks, he was asked a little bit about what to expect on where they're headed and what he thinks the Blues are going to be doing here in these. Uh, this tournament, this postseason, and here's what he had to say. You know, I think we did a good job here with the, the skates we had and uh, a couple scrimmages, but, um, you know, the pace has picked up and uh, we're preparing for war here. So, um, you know, it, it all comes together and uh, you prepare the same way. Just nothing changes and um, just, yeah, keep moving forward. So Jordan Bennington certainly seems ready, right? <laughs> and he's the guy that, uh, well, he just doesn't look nervous ever. However, I'm not the same as Jordan Bennington. And this has nothing to do with his play because we haven't seen any play. Right. Like we've had inner squad games. You can't really tell anything from that, you know, and his puck tracking looked good. He looked relatively quiet in the crease, but his one game against the Chicago Blackhawk Blackhawks going to be enough to get him ready for that round robin and playoff series. And do you give him that full game or do you split it? Because, well, guess what? Jake Allen needs right. him that time too. Yeah. Well, that's going to be the biggest question that I have going into these first four games before you actually get into the playoffs is what does this look like for Jake Allen because let's say that and I don't even want to say it but if you have a circumstance where you need Jake Allen and he doesn't play the first four games you're just going to throw him in cold turkey you can't do that I would imagine you'll see both of these guys play two games just to get that there the mojo thing ribs and you would know better than I would because you're a former player but at least from the outside and the perspective I have of Bennington that mojo's already there for him. It's just getting into game action. Now, I asked him after their final practice Saturday, you know, what's going to be the difficult part for a goaltender jumping into play like this if having three months off? And he said, honestly, it's going to be timing. He said, I don't know if there's any one thing, but it's going to be the timing aspect of, you know, when to drop or when to track the puck or when to shift from one side to the other. He said, that's going to be the most part. And he didn't even use the word difficult just different, he said, because you haven't done this for three months. So that's what I would imagine is going to be the hard part for a goaltender. But I think he needs one game. I think you need one game against competition as a goaltender. And again, I'm not a goaltender. I've never played goaltending. But I would, I would, it would seem watching those guys in normal preseason action, Rivs, they play one, maybe two games, and then they are good to go. I think you get one or two games under your belt as you're, if you're Jordan Bennington or Jake Allen you have that timing down, and that mojo's already flowing in them. You heard him use the word war. They're ready to go no matter what. Yeah, and look, uh, here's where I go with it, is not so much the you know, the the technical side of goaltending here. I don't really look at he, the way he's moving. I guess I do. I watch the way he moves, his puck tracking, his ability to see through traffic, all this stuff. But one thing that, you, that people don't realize is that goaltenders – follow what the team is doing systematically. Right. And they get used to situations to where, okay, I know on this three-on-two, Petro's going to isolate the shooter. Uh, Gunnarsson's going to take away the middle pass. I have to be ready to adjust to the third guy in the rush or the shot for the rebound. I got to make sure I steer the rebound to a non-dangerous area. You get used to how your players handle the situations. Power play, penalty kill, all defensive zone face-offs. 
So that's the thing for me that concerns me a little bit is they really don't have official reps. And what are the Blues going to look like ultimately mm-hmm. when they open the gates here in Edmonton and say, hey, guess what, guys, it's time to go play. We know they have depth. We know they have leadership. Craig Berube is going to be ready. The players are going to be ready. But the execution of what they are used to doing on a daily basis is probably going to suffer just a little bit. And there's no runway here. We have an exhibition game, three round robin games that, you know, for all intents and purposes, the Blues are talking about, well, you're not worried too much about this. You heard Mark Spector earlier today talk about the Winnipeg Jets. Mm -hmm. You don't want to play this team. So guess what? Put yourself in a position to where you don't have to play that team and end up first place. And that's where I get a little worried, not so much about the Blues, but the overall product here is the goalies being ready for the systems that the teams are playing and the systems not being 100%. Well, and that's it for me, too. It's not so much the goaltenders as it is the defense. Like, is the defense going to be ready? Because goalies do play off of how the defensemen play the puck. And, you know, Jordan Bennington's used to watching a Colton Pareko whiz around the back of the net with the puck and move it up the ice. Or an Alex Petrangelo dropping down and blocking shots. But is that going to be the same thing with four-month hiatus of no hockey against competition? Are these guys going to be back into the system of dropping down, blocking shots like they're used to? They also haven't had Vince Dunn in their lineup throughout training camp. And is he just going to be thrust to be determined in? right now? Yeah, we don't even know. The same thing with the forwards. And Ivan Barbashev's not going to be a part of this. So it's all about that systematic play in front of Bennington and Jake Allen to where people keep saying that, yeah, they're going to have an advantage, the Blues and the Avalanche and the Knights and the Stars, because they're playing four games rather than the other team playing one game before they get into elimination. But I agree with Mark as well, Rivs. The, the teams that are playing the qualifying rounds, the play-in games... Those are going to be the dangerous teams because they've played that high level of competition for three straight games where the Blues are just playing round-robin action. One thing, too, I think we have to look at is the youth that the Blues have, and that doesn't just mean the rookies, right? We're talking about Robert Thomas, Zach Sanford, and so on and so on, and I thought it was interesting earlier in the show when we had Mark Spector on of what he talked about regarding the Blues' youth. Someone on among the younger, less expected people on that St. Louis Blues lineup is going to have a hell of a playoff if they're holding the Stanley Cup two and a half months from now. We're going to look back on a line and we're going to go, whew, we didn't think that line could do it. Or look at that defenseman that had a bunch of injuries and this kid came out of nowhere and gave us 18 solid minutes a night. Uh, I would be surprised if you know, if they just played it out exactly as they did last year and O'Reilly wins the Smite and Petrangelo's you know, their best defenseman every night. And Bennington's as good as he was this year as he was last. Something's got to be different, right? It just, the book never seems to read the same way one spring after the next, does it? Here's what I'm looking forward to seeing is, like Mark Spector just talked about, yeah, you you should know what to expect from O'Reilly, Tarasenko, Petrangelo, Pareko, all the guys who are veterans, Scandella, now you have him. The young guys. Okay, and I'm going to throw Jordan Bennington into this, okay, because he's just a second-year NHL goalie. But you go down the lineup and you look at Robert Thomas, Zach Sanford, Oscar Sundquist. You know, he's right on the bubble there as a young guy, but we'll put him in there. Mackenzie McEachern, how big is his role going to be? Ivan Barbashev, he'll be in and out due to the pregnancy of his wife. Vince Dunn, yet to get on the ice, but a lot of these guys are going to play big, big parts in Mm -hmm. the Blues' success this year. So, in your opinion, 
do the veterans have to pull this thing upward, or do the ro- the rookies or the young guys push this team to a new level? I think the veterans have to maintain the level that they usually play, like a Shen, O'Reilly, Tarasenko, Schwartz. The rookies are the ones that have to push. They don't win the Stanley Cup unless Bennington pushes his game to the next level last year. Same with Pareko, same with Sunquist, same with Barbashev. You have to have those younger guys push your team to the next level. And that goes for any team in the NHL. Like if the Colorado Avalanche want to win the Stanley Cup, Kale McCarr has to be an incredible rookie for them. The same can be said for other players. But, you know, I'll turn it a little bit on your ribs. I don't know if it's just youth in terms of age. I think it's youth in terms of experience in the playoffs. I think that's the youth that comes to mind. And I'm curious of who sticks out to you. I have three guys when hearing Mark Spector talk about that that have to do what he's talking about. To me, Sammy Blay's one of them. That is going to change people's perspective of him as a winger. Jordan Cairo is one that I think is going to have an effective role on this team if he gets the shot, which he gets a shot if Sanford or Blaze struggle mm-hmm. or if there's an injury, and Justin Falk. We've spent so much time talking about Falk, and I know people will hear me say that and say, well, he's not young. He's 29 years old. He's played in one Stanley Cup playoffs in his career, and that was last year, and he was effective. I think he's going to be one of those guys that Mark mentioned playing 17, 18, 20 minutes a night that says, whoa, where the hell did this guy come from? He was yeah. terrible last year. I think he could be very effective for this team. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I didn't really think about that, but yeah, he's only had he's only got one NHL playoffs under his belt, right. and that was last year with the Carolina Hurricanes, and he had a great playoff. Mm-hmm. And he is looking for a bounce back moment for himself. He is a defenseman; he can carry a lot of minutes. So, yeah, that's really intriguing. And I, I do think as well the two other guys that just stick out for me. Yeah. Robert Thomas, mm-hmm. I just love the way this kid plays. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about it in depth for the last week to 10 days about how exciting he is to watch, how fast he is, and how well he plays at high speeds. I have predicted that we'll see him from time to time with Tarasenko and Braden Shan on the yeah. wing. Time will tell with that, but that's how much I think of him right now. And Sammy Blay. Okay, this guy discovering his offensive ability again. Not like he ever lost it, but you do take on a different role when you get to the NHL. You'd play whatever role that team needs to stay in the NHL, to stay in the lineup. And you were a fourth liner last year for the team. Exactly. And so that leads me to my next one is Jordan Cairo is an interesting player when it comes to this because I view it as... He's going to be this year's Sammy Blay yeah. to where Sammy Blay jumped in and contributed Great point. with a couple of big goals at some really good times, albeit much more physical of a player than Jordan Cairo is. But that doesn't mean Cairo can't produce out there. And if you go through the Blues lineup, and even as you get to their fourth line, which we call it a fourth line, which is it's like a third, it's like a second line for most teams. Some teams would give millions right. of dollars to have <laughs> those guys. You get a guy like Kairou playing with a Steen, with a Sunquist, with a Barbashev, even a Mackenzie McEachern, who is just a hound dog on yeah. loose pucks and on four checks, and he's got speed to burn. This is potentially an opportunity for Jordan Kairou to light the lamp. And I think that, yes, the youth of this year's St. Louis Blues team is absolutely going to have to step up here to get a repeat out of St. Louis Blues. And the young bodies tend to, knock on wood, stay healthy in these situations. Right. So it's going to be interesting to watch that. I'm excited for Stanley Cup playoffs, but I'm also excited for the junk drawer. We always have some silliness in there, so joy and the junk drawer when we come back. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. It's time to open up the junk drawer with Ribs and BK.
Welcome back to Ribs and BK. Alex Ferrario, the Ferrari, subbing in today and the board. We're going to dive into the junk drawer. T-Bone, what do you got for us? So last night, I'm scrolling through Twitter, just relaxing a little bit late at night, and I see something trending, and it's about a clown hotel or motel either or in las vegas <laughs> i'm gonna call it a motel <laughs> in vegas let's go with a motel that's the uh the mystique unless it's a casino they're all motels yeah so i see this clown motel in vegas and i'm like man that's kind of creepy so i look into it more I'm like surely that doesn't exist but then i go oh my gosh this thing's even worse not only is it real it's next to a graveyard and i immediately said okay i thought about going to vegas for the 21st birthday thinking otherwise now tanner it does exist and don't call me shirley (laughs) okay so the graveyard thing doesn't bother me and actually neither does the clown thing and i know that's a big roadblock for some people and i'll tell you a quick story i've told it on here before but i'll I'll give it again in case somebody hasn't heard it and i know t-bone probably hasn't heard it but when i played in detroit for the red wings i know boo anyways (laughs) the wife and i were looking for a place uh, in the detroit suburbs We came across a great house. I mean, it had everything we wanted. Nice, spacious, in a great area next to other teammates. I'm like, winner, winner, chicken dinner here. We walk (laughs) out on the patio. The backyard is literally a graveyard. Like 25 yards. Like tombstones and everything? Like right there. Oh, my God. And like... I'm okay with it. I was like, you know what? We're getting a deal on this place. And she's like, well, why do you think we're getting a deal, right? So, I don't know. The graveyards and the clowns don't do anything to me. But, yeah, that'd be kind of creepy for somebody who's not into that. So, graveyards, I'm fine with. I have colorful, colorphobia. Is that what it's called when you're afraid of clowns? Like, you can I say have, anything. I'll just say yes. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> yeah, it's bad. But, look, I am deathly afraid of clowns. And I've seen this place before. I've drove past it when I've gone to Vegas with a rental car. It was named the scariest motel in America. Huh. This this so the clown thing the people that work there the clowns no. or is it just clown themed they have freaking clown dolls in every room like you are in a room oh, that's awesome and there are clown dolls sitting on like dressers staring at you that's terrifying and it is freaking ridiculous right next to a graveyard right next to a I graveyard I actually think it's genius no it is not genius because all you need are one of those freaking clowns to blink game over. That'd be great if you had a timer, like the guy working the front desk has a timer, and as he sees people going in the room, he gives a little blink blink on the eyes of the clown. I think you're paying for that experience, though. I'm I'm reading through from from some of these reviews on it. One star. I made my reservation never having visited before. The motel (laughs) was very clean. Not the floor was filthy. (laughs) I like how that's a complaint. (laughs) Yeah. Never mind the graveyard and the creepy clown in the corner. I didn't even know I was staying at a clown motel. I just saw it. I just saw (laughs) it. I just booked a clown motel without checking it out. That's hilarious. The clown masks do scare people. I know that. People jump out all the time in those those videos that we see around Halloween of people just standing in clown outfits by the side of the road. It is a little creepy. Now, to stay on the mask subject here, I've got a little something. I thought it was pretty unique when I'm watching the Pirates and the Cardinals play, and the Pirates manager goes, you know what? I'm sick of you, ump. I don't like your call. I'm coming out here. So Jordan Baker was the umpire and manager Derek Shelton did not like a call. So he comes waltzing out of the dugout with his mask up over his nose. The umpire then proceeds to step back, take off his mask, go into his pocket, 
pull out his face covering, his mask, and then they proceed to would be about six feet distance instead of the chest, the chest that we're used to. We end up with a six foot and they look kind of silly pointing at each other. And you can't tell what anybody's saying because the lips are covered. <laughs> Guys, was that not entertaining? Am I crazy here? No. Welcome to 2020. Well, you know what I loved about it? The ump bobbled his mask when he was walking out. I was waiting for him to drop his mask on the ground and be like, oh, great. What do I do now? But I just I loved Shelton walking out of the dugout so furious. And while he's getting out of the he forgets his mask. So he like storms up the steps and then he swings back around. He's like, oh, shoot, I forgot my mask and then pulls it back up. It was hilarious. Then he paused and waited for the ump. Like right. before he got fired up, he like, OK, pause two, yeah. three. Got your mask Put on. Your mask. Here's yeah. what I think of you. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. I thought it was funny, too. I think later in the game, too, he goes out to I think there's another dispute with the count on what the count was. And he goes out there and the umpire didn't even waste time to go get the mask out of the pocket. He just pulls his cap down and just uses his cap as his mask. I thought That's that was thinking. funny, too. I, but it, correct me if I'm crazy here, because most of the time I am. I'm on Long Island iced teas That's usually at point. this time. He got tossed, but he was stayed in the dugout the rest of the game. No, what happened was Derek Holland, who was a few, I think he's starting this week, Is got he? tossed. And I think I heard Danny Mack say that he was actually sitting underneath those uh, coverings that were in the bleachers. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He got tossed and he wasn't even part of the dugout. <laughs> It's an amazing that thing. That is fantastic. Okay, Ribs, I want you to do something for me. Okay. I want you to tell me the craziest thing that you've ever eaten. Oh, God. Okay, so obviously that goes back to Russia. I play in Russia. <laughs> That's usually and, where those stories start. You know, I figured out a few words, got to speak a little bit of Russian, but when I was first there, it was limited. And I used to ask them, you know, like, what are we eating? You know, kind of pointing. And kuritsa was chicken. So that's pretty self-explanatory. Okay. And then miesa. Miesa. It's meat. Okay. No, you just talk what kind Russian. of meat? What kind of meat, <laughs> no, right? No, you don't ask those questions. So I would be up there and I'd be like, uh, you know, asking and be like, oh, Miesa. I'm like, okay, what are we looking at? Squirrel, dog, cow, horse. Like, I don't know what we're going here. So that, to me, we went out for a team dinner after and they had this Miesa meat just sitting there, which I had no idea what it was. And then they had a turtle, okay? A full turtle a sitting turtle? on the table. Put this picture in your head. A full turtle shell and all. And just before we start to eat, they pull, they peel the shell off the turtle, and we're eating soup out of the turtle. That well, is a, let uh, me rephrase that. They were eating <laughs> soup out of the turtle. You were vomiting in the trash can next to the table. I grabbed a beer, and I was like, you guys eat, I will drink. Okay, well, uh, what about eating metal? How's Ooh. this story for you? So, Jenna Evans, she was in the middle of a high-speed train that was racing down the tracks with her fiance when some bad guys appeared and the only thing she could do to protect her 2.4 carat diamond was to swallow it genius right uh well then she debatable. well then she woke up oh she ate her ring in her dreams oh wow she was having that intense of a dream that she thought she needed to save her diamond took it off of her finger and ate it in her sleep so the next day, you know, like when the dog eats something, right. you kind of follow it around the yard. Yeah. To wait Do to hose it down to find it. follow her around her daily routine the next day? If I'm her fiance and I just paid for a 2.4 carat diamond, yeah. Yeah. And now here's the next question. Don't you flush any time. Until I check. And, and do you try to promote, oh, let's say movement for your, your lady? Oh, yeah. Your, like, do you say, oh, hey, honey, here's some X-Lax. Like, let's get this thing back in a hurry. Oh, yeah. I don't even try and hide that. I say, here, drink this X-Lax immediately. 
get wow. that ring back. That's interesting. The yeah. visual. Also, she's eh. she's wearing a mask from now on when she sleeps at night. Yeah, <laughs> no You're kidding. not eating anything else. <laughs> the visual either way is disturbing. And what we're going to dive into next is the visual of MLB this past weekend. Fans not in the stands, cutouts, dog cutouts, virtual fans, all of the above. And we're going to touch on Matt Carpenter and the St. Louis Cardinals offense 780. Jump in anytime you want. It is 1259. Just made it under the wire in time. This is your time check from Clarkson Jewelers, your official provider of licensed Rolex jewelry. We're coming back at you hot with Cardinals stuff. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Here, Riz and BK. We've got Alex Ferrario subbing in for BK, who is a, a healthy scratch today. And we're joined by Tanner T-Bone Hendrickson on the board, doing a fantastic job. All right, guys, here's what I want to get into. And I, this is what I thought was interesting throughout the weekend was what teams are doing in their own ballparks to, I guess, increase the visual of what we're looking at on TV. The empty seats, the Cardinals kind of opted for the empty seats. They threw some some banners and some stuff over the seats. They pumped in crowd noise. They pumped in some songs and some boos and some cheers. But as you look across the league, we saw cardboard cutouts of season ticket holders that could have their picture, you know, in the green seat, so to say, right behind home plate. A couple got obliterated by home run balls. Yes, and which I'm I want to dive into that in a second. <laughs> uh, then we saw a couple of teams, I forget who had dogs in there. So people could email a picture of their dog and they'd make yeah. a cutout and the dogs would be watching the game. And then Fox had virtual fans. Okay, that was kind of creepy to me because yeah. sometimes they were there, sometimes they weren't there. Then the virtual fans are like doing the wave which I don't know if I've ever really seen the wave at a baseball game. I've seen it at football. I've seen it at hockey. You've never seen the wave at a baseball game? I've never seen the wave. Say the wave happens That's like where every it originated, game. Is it I think. really? Yeah. Well, maybe I'm too many beers deep at that point. Maybe that, I'm drowning in the wave at that point. That would sound right. But based upon what we saw throughout the weekend, and I think i got to give credit here to Major League Baseball and every team that, that hosted games this weekend, they're doing their best to be creative and to make this a good experience for television because that's your only viewership. Right. Yeah, well, I think, look, the cardboard cutouts creeped me out a little bit, but the more you think about it... What the, if they were clowns? Oh, I would boycott baseball if they were clowns. I would boycott baseball if they were clowns. That would be funny. I'm sorry. It creeped me out a little bit at the beginning, but the more you watch it, the more it, it just kind of made sense to fill those seats and make it look... Because, look, with the crowd noise and then the seats being filled, at least it feels like there's something going on. I actually liked the video fans that were in and like I watched, the virtual fans yeah, i watched some of the, that's weird though for the players because they're not seeing it they're not seeing it but i think it was i think it's weird for the viewers because like why do i care what these people are doing mm-hmm. but i also feel like it makes you want to be a part of it right like i think it's a smart thing for baseball to do because if you're a fan you're at home you're watching and you're like hey i want to be a part of this because you get to be on television players aren't going to see it but you yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. you're a part of it the problem that I'm thinking when I'm watching it, though, is, okay, how long until somebody decides to take a shower while they're watching the ball game? Next thing you know, your Zoom video while you're streamed on the television broadcast is laid out in front of everyone. That'd be entertaining. 
It'd so be very entertaining. Here's where my head goes real quickly. Well, here. some and some heads would go on television. They could be, right? But now here's where I go. And I've already, like, I've got too many businesses on the go and too much going on yeah. to worry about this. So I'm just going to disclose this idea. And teams that are listening, so uh, the DeWitt family, if you're listening, I know you are, create a promotion with this. Okay, go virtual fans and you hide, like, where's Waldo, right? So yeah. you hide the Cardinals Hall of Famer somewhere in the crowd behind. And when that Hall of Famer pops up, at that point you could be on their website, on their app, and be like, oh, hey, it's, uh, you know, Bob Gibson right behind home play. Bob Gibson next to the dugout. You find Waldo, whoever and that is. the text to muzzle Jamie Rivers comes in three, <laughs> two, one. Okay, there we go. I think it's a good idea, though, guys. <laughs> I think guys. it's a great idea. You could run a promotion there and get fans interacting with what they're watching on TV and guess what? You're going to draw their eyeballs into the game more often. So, I don't know. Maybe it's a crappy idea. Maybe it's a good idea. Cardinals, call me later. We can discuss the uh, the possibilities. 314, dude, if they have clown cutouts, I'm done with baseball forever. <laughs> From the 314, Jamie saw the wave at a hockey game. What kind of boring-ass hockey game did you go to? Hockey is too fast to focus on doing the wave. I've seen the wave at hockey games an awful lot. The Montreal Forum before the Bell Center was incredible at the wave, and they would get her going like twice a game, and that thing was impressive. So I got no problem with the wave at a hockey game. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, I don't either. You know, speaking on the fans, I like the idea of the virtual fans more than I do cardboard cutouts because to me the cardboard cutouts just look kind of weird. I I just didn't like it. Did you see Alex uh, and Jamie? I don't remember what ball game it was, but they had the virtual fans leaving early. Yeah, like, oh my that's God. fantastic. That was the that's uh, amazing. That was the Seattle game because they were getting obliterated. And I think it was Saturday. <laughs> they they saw the screen of the virtual fans just like slowly dissipating in the middle of the broadcast. Oh my God. Like people are logging off, and then the broadcaster said, "Well, I guess fans are leaving early." So that actually leads me to my next question for you guys: Is how many virtual fans would have left Bush Stadium watching Matt Carpenter and Harrison Bader? hit this weekend if it was just those two they'd be gone in the first inning okay but how do we solve this problem guys because before the season even started we talked about matt carpenter got to be a bounce back year harrison bader got to establish yourself at least if nothing else as close to an average batter major league baseball neither of them took it and ran i'm concerned that this is going to cause a big hole in the cardinals offense it's early i know three games in but if you you know, attach it to last year, it's kind of a carryover. Yeah, well, and I think in the case, and we had a lot of texts earlier when we suggested, or I suggested, moving him to the top of the batting order because they're saying that's going to break up the speed of having Colton Wong there, and I agree 100% with that. But look, if Colton Wong is getting on base and if Matt Carpenter is the better leadoff hitter, which statistically, if you go through baseball averages, he is the better player at the leadoff position you at least are moving runners over. And I know you're you're taking away that speed, but if Chris Carpenter becomes a double machine in the leadoff position and Colton Wong can get on base... Well, if look, Chris Carpenter does it, that's going to be Did amazing. I say Chris Carpenter? That'd be phenomenal. <laughs> I'd like to see Chris Carpenter Chris, back. Chris Carpenter could do whatever he wants. <laughs> Plain and simple. Look, if Matt Carpenter... Take two! Take if two. Matt Carpenter can lead... Give it to me, Tanner. If Matt Carpenter can become the doubles machine in the leadoff position, Colton Wong is your two-hole hitter, or Tommy Edmund as your two-hole hitter, it opens up a base for stolen bases and you're moving runners over. I don't know if that solves it. I think in terms of solving this with Matt Carpenter, you give him a little bit longer. 
I know people don't like to hear that, but kind of the theme all last year too, it is, right? But it's until D- Tommy Edmond come in. But it's a DH position. Yeah, it's not like he's hurting you defensively. And if one person's not hitting, hopefully people can pick up that slack. But as a DH, you got to give him reps. If you sit him on the bench now and then hope a week from now we'll get better, he's not going to go anywhere because that's what was advertised of him last year. He was practicing every single day, working himself to the bone. But it wasn't producing on the field. You got to get more at reps to see if that back can get hot. And if it doesn't after a couple of weeks, then yeah, you have to move on and make a decision. From the 636 Air Comfort Service text line, Tommy Edmonds' production is better than trying to force Matt Carpenter at the top of the lineup with most at bats. Just not worth it. I think this is what people are looking at right now is the success of Tommy Edmonds, Colton Wong at the top of the order. Guys that are getting on base to where last year one of our complaints was that Goldie got up to bat and there was nobody to to move ahead. Mm-hmm. They, he was up there solo, so he got uh, tough pitching. He got the tough looks. He didn't get really anything to swing at. Now you get guys on base. The pitchers have to pitch to Goldie. And then guess what? You got DeYoung following that up. Well, you know, you mentioned about Edmund and he has to be up top. You got to have that production. I don't know your guys' view on it, but to me, that nine spot, especially with the DH and no pitcher, is basically a second leadoff hitter. And maybe it's just, maybe my thought on that is because maybe that's where I hit a lot when I played baseball. But to me, that nine spot is definitely second leadoff. So to me, throwing mm-hmm. Bader down there doesn't work. To me, if you put Edmund there at the nine oh, and then put know. Carpenter up top and Wong at the two, to me, I mean, it's basically. I just worry that he's not going to get enough touches then, right? Because yeah, well, the bottom of the order doesn't necessarily or doesn't get up as much they don't get as much runners in scoring position yeah. situations because that's usually but the you bottom do have of a line. black hole at the bottom of that order right now but harrison bader last year towards the end of the season and i don't know the exact numbers but he was probably at his best when he was hitting in the nine spot last season when mike schilt was experimenting with it and for them there that's a position where you put some speed on the base and you got back to back to back speed with a Colton Wong and a Tommy Edmond. So I just went back and looked at this when you guys were talking. Um, so over 2,000, 2,800 at-bats for Matt Carpenter in the in the leadoff spot. 279 batting average, a 382 on-base perc- on base percentage. In the three-hole, the two-hole, the five-hole, the seven-hole, the nine-hole, wherever you want to throw him, it's 200 or less. His best approach at the plate is at the leadoff spot. If you want Carpenter produce, you got to give him back that spot at the leadoff. And if he doesn't produce there, that's your last straw. And I want to say this too real quick. Numbers don't lie. People lie. Carpenter has said, oh, I can hit anywhere. No, you can't. The numbers prove it. You can only hit in the leadoff spot. Numbers don't lie. Throw him in there. If he doesn't produce, then pull him out of the lineup and put someone else there. Yeah, I mean, 244 batting in the second spot, 208 batting in the third spot, 158 in the fourth spot, 190 in the fifth spot, 337 in the sixth spot, which is his best, but it's only 100 at-bats. Seven spot is 286, eight spots 182, nine spots 267. Wow. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what, you talk about producing, I want I want your guys' take on how the bullpen is going to have to produce for the Cardinals. What guys are going to have to do their job? Ken, Ken. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. All right, Ribs and BK back at you here. Alex Ferrario joining me today. BK out on assignment. We'll have him back tomorrow. We've got T-Bone, the one and only behind the board, helping us out with things today. So before the break, guys, 
I told you guys that I was really wanted to talk about the production of the Cardinals bullpen. And yes, just like anything else, we're three games into the season. This is not an official evaluation of the offense, the defense, or the pitching staff. But the Cardinals bullpen, you know, KK Kim, to me, in game one, he didn't look settled. And we talked about going into the season how his last uh, the performance against the Royals, you know, he got in there and it looked like they were baffled about what he was throwing. Well, I'll tell you what, the Pirates didn't look too baffled. And I'm wondering if this is their option to close out games, is it going to be a struggle for the Cardinals? How long till they experiment otherwise? And now the interesting thing is Giovanni Gallegos, Alex Reyes, and Genesis Cabrera should be available this week. So, Alex, I guess my question to you is, after watching the three games on the weekend, what were your overall thoughts about the Cardinals' bullpen? K.K. Kim as the closeout guy, and then where do these other guys, Gallegos, Reyes, and Cabrera, where do they fit in if they're able to join the team this week? Well, in terms of K.K. as the closer, I mean, it wasn't the greatest outing, but he did pick up a save. Scared the heck out of me. Scared the heck out of everybody. But let's be honest, as Cardinals fans, we're used to that. We've had that since Jason Mott. Like, yeah. even Jordan Hicks makes you stressed out every once in a while. Carlos Martinez stressed out a lot of people, but he still got the save. Getting the save is the important factor, and KK did it. Now, look, it could have completely combusted after he gave up those two runs and still had one out with somebody on first. Like, you could have blown that save, but he knuckled down and he got the outs when he needed to. So I'm not so fast to pull the string on a KK Kim yet. I think that was his first appearance in U.S. baseball. I think that was his first competition against major league-ready players. So I'm curious to see what happens the further KK gets those opportunities there. Uh, My impression overall with the bullpen, though, was depth. I mean, look, Ryan Helsley looked great Mm -hmm. in his outing on Friday for the Cardinals. I mean, he got a strikeout, and then I think he got through that clean inning. Cody Whitley was another one that looked really good. I was shocked with that. Really good. Yeah, he And he was one that surprised BK that he was on that roster. And honestly, I think it surprised a lot of people. Well, because they started the clock. Exactly. Right. And in the 60 game season, maybe you'd choose not to, but I think they were kind of forced with some of these guys who were not clear right away. But to your point, the bullpen, he did great. Yeah. But I mean, bullpen wise, if you start the clock, if he gets you out, that's what you essentially need him for. And I mean, you go through the line, John Gantz, John Gant, Austin Gomber came in in a damage control situation, struggled, but Mm -hmm. still got out of it before it really got out of hand. They have depth. What I'm interested about is what happens with Gallegos, Reyes, and Henesis Cabrera. Are they bringing all three up right away? I don't know if they are because you didn't get any training camp with Reyes or Henesis Cabrera. He was injured last year, too. He just can't seem to get out of his own way. I think he's a taxi squad guy that's just going to continue to throw. I think the same can be said about Henesis Cabrera because, look, Tyler Webb's your lefty, Kim's your lefty, and Andrew Miller's your lefty, and Andrew Miller looked good. I don't know if you need another lefty. Gallegos is going to be your damage control guy. People think he's going to be a closer or he's going to be a setup guy. To me, Gallegos is your damage control of. You got two on with one out or what Kim was in situation the other day. You're calling on Gallegos to get you out because he can pitch to righties and lefties. I think he's going to be a utility man for Mike Schilt. See, my two takeaways for the bullpen this past weekend. Miller was the only other person minus KK, if I'm not mistaken, that gave up a run. And he looked a little wild, but I'm not too concerned with Andrew Miller. The two takeaways that I really had, and one of them was with two of them, both that you mentioned, Alex. One, John Gant looked a little wild, and he got out of it. But remember, he started off pitching really well last season, and then he fell off the second half of the mm -hmm. year, and he fell off pretty hard, and he didn't even make the postseason roster. So 
to me, he is someone that to keep an eye on and see if Whitley, if he looks as good as he did the other day, because I thought Whitley was going to be, you know, depth for this 30-man. When they go to 28-26, he's off. If he continues to pitch well and Gant has those struggles of control, maybe Gant's off the roster. Mm-hmm. And then my other thing was with KK. You said, well, he made it a little interesting, and he said Martinez did in the past, Rosenthal, uh, Mott. To me, he can't afford that this year because there's going to be such a short string. So to me, KK put me on nerves, and I know it's early and it's only one appearance. I'm almost looking at another closing up, another closer, possibly Minnesota-Milwaukee this weekend, because you just can't afford that this year. You can't, but if he gets as soon as he blows a save, then yeah, you got to go to somebody else. You tried. You can't put him out. Yeah, he did try, (laughs) but he failed. If you get the save... At the end of the day, that's what you wanted. Mike Schilt says that all the time. He said it last year about Carlos Martinez. Look, he got the save. Mm-hmm. Made us a little nervous, but he got the save. I think that's something that's going to grow. If he goes out there next game in his closing situation and strikes out the side, they're not worried about it. I think that's one of those evolving things. I'll tell you what, you made a really good point on um, on Gant. I think Ponce de Leon makes John Gant expendable. Really? And Ponce de Leon only got a third of an inning on Saturday, but he did get a it was either a ground out or a pop out but he got the out Ponce de Leon and John Gann are very similar in terms of length that they can pitch both very similar deliveries I feel like off the mound so yeah I think John Gant makes things expendable and you know what Junior Fernandez was somebody that everybody was like oh he's not going to be here long term well he got a clean inning with a strikeout See, so that's another option I don't want to jump on Fernandez yet because he was wild in summer camp and he had this one good outing against Pittsburgh so he's someone that I am keeping an eye on but I do like the idea of Ponce de Leon possibly being that guy that replaces Gomber. Like you said, same delivery. Ponce is pretty deceptive. He's got good stuff. And I know the numbers will lean towards, oh, well, his numbers aren't great. I mean, his ERA is kind of high because he was a starter. But I think if you put him in the bullpen, he's someone that's interesting that could be that guy that could take over a setup role possibly if he's coming in for Gantt. Or even just middle innings. Like you said, he could come in, maybe give you two, three innings. Right now he's stretched out. But one thing that fascinates me with the Cardinals' bullpen, and I'm going to jump back to KK here, he's a, he's a starter. That's what he was signed on, mm-hmm. not really signed on to do. He was going to be in that competition for that fifth spot. But the longer this season goes, and let's say there's an injury to someone in that rotation, the longer the season goes and the longer he's in the bullpen as a one-inning man, the less he's stretched out and the less likely he could jump into your rotation. So to me, that's just one of the fascinating things to keep an eye on is KK how long do you wait to use him as a short-inning guy compared to a guy that could go three, four innings because he's currently stretched out as a starter? Okay, so here's where I want to go. I'm going to work our way backwards now, okay? We talk about the bullpen. I want to know how important it is going to be to have those guys that can give you good bulky innings in the middle, meaning three, even maybe four innings because we watched the starters this weekend. Jack Flaherty, well, he's an anomaly. Okay, we know what he's capable of doing, and he went, what, seven innings, if mm-hmm. I'm correct. Wayno will good to me. Okay, Wayno was, you know, he was throwing in the changeup at, what, high 70s and yeah. then coming in the low 90s with the fastball. And then the old Uncle Charlie. The Uncle Charlie. I thought it took him a little bit to get settled in, but I thought he overall he looked pretty good. He handed the ball off after that, and the rest is history. Dakota Hudson. Mm-hmm. Guys, this is a little concerning to me. I know it's one game, his first start, and everybody's going to be like, oh, come on, Riv, you're being a little hard. But at the same time, like I'm expecting maybe he just, okay, let me phrase it a different way. I feel like he's not stretched out enough yet. I feel like his his gas is emptying out before it should, and this could be problematic for the Cardinals. How long do you go with a guy that's is fizzling out? You know what I'm saying? Before you get to the bullpen and get your mid guys. 
And are you worried about Dakota Hudson? I'm not worried. The part that kind of set the alarms off for me was the fact he gave up two home runs. Like, Dakota Hudson would get into jams last year of walks, ground balls that would get through. He wasn't giving up home runs. That was a Miles Michaelis scenario where Michaelis was giving up a lot of bombs. But Dakota Hudson was a 16-game winner last year. And I know wins don't mean a lot to fans in terms of statistics. But look, the guy was a ground ball specialist last year. Maybe he's not stretched out. Maybe he's not ready. I'm not sure about that. But I'm not so fast to pull the string on Dakota Hudson yet because I think Dakota Hudson's going to be very useful for this Cardinals team. In terms of the long man in the bullpen that you're asking, Ribs, I think they're very important because, look, at the end of the day, the only assured thing you have in terms of innings in your rotation is Flaherty. I mm-hmm. mean, Flaherty's the one that you are guaranteed to get six or seven innings out of. I'm not surprised at that. Like, no. I think that's what we we're expecting. Wainwright, we don't know what his road numbers look like yet because we haven't played on the road, and his road splits weren't great last year. Uh, Miles Michaelis can go deep into games, but if he gets into jams or he has a high pitch count, he's pulled out early. Same with Carlos Martinez and Dakota Hudson. So you need to have three or four guys who can give you three, four innings Mm -hmm. to get you through that gap if you need them. The setup men are important, but I think the long men are even more important, especially in a 60-game season, because as soon as you're into damage control, I mean, look at Wayno Stark, guys. He was two innings in. They already had Austin Gomber warming up, warming yeah. up in the bullpen. Yeah, like you don't. Then he have, found his groove, though, and then they shut him down, which I think was perfect. Yeah. Wayno, but you don't have the luxury of having that long man just kind of finding his way into games of giving up four runs and then bringing him in. You, need, if you give up two runs and you look like you're in a bad inning, you got to get that long man in immediately. So then, let me ask you this: in a situation like this, with the question marks surrounding Gallegos, Reyes, Cabrera, how badly do the Cardinals miss Brebia? right now oh i think it's huge tremendously yeah i was thinking about him as i watched these innings and and the 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 mid-relief guy the guy who's got to maybe eat up some innings for you because maybe you got a bad start or your starter's not on his game that day to me brebia is going to be missed a lot you're missing him more than you're missing a jordan hicks or a gallegos right now i think he's the one that he he is the damage control guy that i told you gallegos was going to be He's a guy who you could throw in in any inning. He's a guy who can get righties and lefties out. He's a guy who can give you three innings if you need. He keeps his pitch count low. He is the he is the saver for the Cardinals without the actual closer in the bullpen, I think. So they're going to miss him tremendously this year. Well, that's interesting stuff. And what else is interesting, guys, is we're going to bounce back here. We're going to bounce back with former Blues right winger Jamal Mayer, Stanley Cup champion with the Blackhawks. We'll forgive him for that. But he's going to join us next here on Rivs and BK. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Welcome back to Ribs and BK. BK out on assignment. I'm joined by Alex Ferrario and the man himself, T-Bone, behind the board. I am really pleased to welcome in this next person on the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. My former teammates, former St. Louis Blue, former Blackhawk. We'll forgive him for that. But nonetheless, he's a Stanley Cup champion. Welcome in Jamal Mayers. Jammer, how you doing today, bud? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good, man. It's a little nasty outside. It's been so-so, but I'm excited because we got hockey coming up. I know. It's... uh... We've all been cooped up in the house trying to keep ourselves busy. Those of us with younger kids trying to keep them occupied and safe at the same time has been a challenge. And, you know, I think we've all become golf fans. They beat everyone to the tube. So I'm excited for hockey, excited for this opportunity. 
everyone's in the bubble. That was the biggest concern for me was let's get everyone to that bubble as quickly as possible. They're there. Let's keep them safe and let's get rolling for some hockey. Yeah, I agree. And that was the thing for me, too, is the training camps were kind of they made me nervous because they weren't in the bubble yet. But listen, as as former players, and I know a lot about how we played the game and what our commitment level was. This is a whole other level of commitment, though. I mean, you're leaving your hometown, you're leaving your family, you're leaving everything. You're waltzing into a bubble that has like a 20-foot gate around it. They've got 135 people that are, you know, surrounding the perimeter to make sure that there's no, you know, in or out that is not approved. So as a former player, Jammer, what are your thoughts as the bus pulls into the bubble and you're looking to get started? Honestly, I think excitement. The opportunity is there. I think that guys have come to grips with the fact that they are going to be away from their families. I think the tough days leading up to leaving um, were hard, especially when you have younger kids, I'm assuming, that probably don't understand why dad's not going to be around for a little while. Fortunately, they do have FaceTime. They do have the ability with technology to stay in touch. Um, it won't be the same, and hopefully they'll forgive uh, the guys for being gone so long. And if they're gone for a long time, that's a good thing. And uh, it means they're competing and still have a chance for the Cup. So um, everyone's making sacrifices, not the easiest uh, of circumstances, but the team that deals with those uh, you know, distractions, if you will, the best will have the, the best chance to come together and win. Jamal, first of all, don't let Rivs give you a hard time about being a former Blackhawk because the text line's having a field day with him being a former Red Wing, and they think that's a lot worse. So uh, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, uh, Jamal, going into this uh, this play-in round and the qualifying round for some of these teams, what's your thought on these matchups? Because looking at how the teams are stacked up against each other, of course, with the Blackhawks, who you're very familiar with, playing an Edmonton Oilers team you know, with Calgary and Vancouver and Nashville and Winnipeg, what series do you feel like is going to be the most difficult? Oh, that's tough. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think the team that's going to do well is I think the coaches have become more important in, in this instance. They've had more time to prepare. Typically through a season, you're dealing with a, it's a season of attrition. You've got guys that are in and out of the lineup for whatever reason. This year is more difficult. You've got Teams that are about 99% healthy, which is, never happens heading into the playoffs. You have coaches who've had several weeks to plan and game plan, knowing who their opponent's going to be. Because of that, I think the coaches have been able to strategize on what they'd like to do, what their ideas are, are, are going to be, whether it's five-on-five, five, whether it's uh, special teams. Um, they've had enough time to game plan. So I think their, their importance is even heightened further not to mention they're going to have to manufacture, if you will, a sense of urgency and excitement that won't be there with, without the fans. Jammer, you played on a Blackhawks team that won the Stanley Cup, but also they had several Cup wins in a very short period of time. We talk here in St. Louis, as you know, about the Blues and the possibility of a repeat coming up this year. In your opinion, and having been a part of those locker rooms and those teams, how essential is it for some of the younger players to jump in here and start to carry some of the load for the veteran guys in order for the Blues to even have a chance to repeat? Yeah, I think that the good thing about um, 
being young is you're, you don't know any better. You think you're going to be back every single year. And a lot of times we've seen it over and over for, for the history of time is young players stepped into the playoffs, you know, unaware of the importance and just play free. And that is a value. You think about how many times young rookie players have stepped into the playoffs and, and made an impact. I think it's because if you've been in the league for 12 to 15 years and you realize how hard it is to get to a situation where you have a chance to win, then maybe you're even squeezing your stick uh, even even tighter. So I think it's incumbent upon the younger players to use those fresh young legs and that enthusiasm to kind of push the older guys through the tough moments. And uh, as you know, today's game is dependent upon younger players taking that next step. So the window for the Blues certainly is there to, to win to win again. And um, the reality is, is they're going to need their younger players to step up as every team and the real the other fact is we're in a cap world so the moments and the ability for teams to win are shorter because it's hard to keep these teams together with younger players you know rightfully so you know demanding a lot larger portion of the cap space so um the window is there and the opportunity is there and i think that they have a veteran enough squad to also make sure that guys know that the opportunity is now and not to let it go by jamal everybody in the bubble gets to play one exhibition game, but then these teams that are playing in the qualifying round, they go right into their best of three series. Whereas the top four teams play the round Robin games. Do you see those top four teams that play round Robin at a disadvantage once the 16 team playoff format starts, because they're not playing that competition like the qualifying round is. We'll let you know after the first two games of the real. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's no way to predict that. I think that, uh, at the end of the day, they've earned the right to, to not have to play in, and there's an advantage to that. I think that, you know, it's just going to make, like I said, the coaching, the job of the coaches even more difficult. They're going to have to manufacture that importance in practice. They're going to have to manufacture the sense of urgency in those games that they play uh, to get ready. And at the end of the day, they have that experience that they can lean on and I can assure you that they'll be ready when the playoffs start. Uh, it's an exciting time. Regardless of the situation, these players understand and appreciate, and it isn't lost on them that it's a chance to win the Cup, and it will not have an asterisk. You will be aware that it was during COVID, but this may be the difficult, most difficult Cup to win. We're talking with Jamal Mayers, former St. Louis Blue, Stanley Cup champion, Chicago Blackhawks analyst, jammer, if a team is to go on and win the Stanley Cup here coming up in this tournament slash playoffs style thing, and like you said, I think it's it could be more challenging than even the regular playoffs have been, but how important is the depth going to be? You, Like I said before, you've been a part of this. You've watched teams that will go very deep, win the Cup in Chicago, and it's never just the top-line guys that participate. The depth is huge. And I'm just wondering your take on how important that depth is going to be for a team like the St. Louis Blues or anywhere else that are looking to win this championship. Yeah, the reality is, as you know, Rivs, is that uh, inevitably there's going to be issues that come up, whether it's nagging injuries or guys go down, just because it is such a tough battle. Two months of playoff hockey to win four rounds for the Cup. So you're going to have to depend on and, and probably not planning for it today, but the opportunity is going to arise for younger players, players you're not suspecting, guys that aren't even skating with the team perhaps, 
maybe in there in group two to step in and be a huge contributor uh, when it matters most. So I think that it's incumbent upon those younger players, those guys who probably don't see themselves playing game one to stay prepared, to stay ready mentally because their opportunity could come. And the last thing you want as a professional is to have that chance come and you're not ready and you're not prepared because you thought you'd never get in. So, um, and that comes from leadership. That comes from the coaches on down to the guys in the room who police things and ensure that everyone's uh, towing the rope in the right direction. Jamal, the Blues, of course, first opponent on Wednesday are the Blackhawks in an exhibition game, and then the Blackhawks prepare to take on the Edmonton Oilers. And look, at the end of the day, the Blackhawks could be an opponent of the Blues in this first round of the playoffs. And Chicago's a really intriguing team to me because of the injuries that they went through throughout the season, because of the history of guys that they have who have won Stanley Cups before, of course, of Taves and Kane and Keith and Corey Crawford. Uh, give our listeners a little idea of, of what your thoughts are for Chicago going into this bubble team in this postseason well they're in big trouble but at the end of the day they've got a very they're very porous defensively it's no secret they allow way too many odd man rushes they have a tr- tough time defending in their own zone they're going to give up quality chances the good part is you know you look at the quality chances that Corey's given up he's given them a chance in most games and he's going to have to be spectacular for them to even have a chance uh, I don't expect their defensive woes to be fixed over this break. I think that they have a huge challenge with Dreisaitl and McDavid, and whether or not they play together, they're very difficult to stop. And so you're going up against one of the most dynamic offenses. You're a team that is not very good defensively. I think uh, it's going to be hard for the Hawks to outscore their troubles, which is what they've tried to do in recent years. Um, but you never know. I like the idea that it's only a five-game series, to be honest with you. I think that that benefits the Blackhawks. If Corey can steal a game or two, who knows? So, um, And, again, you have that experience that those guys can lean on. The Oilers have a lot of guys who are unproven, and, and perhaps uh, if the Hawks can get off to a good start, they can make a good series of it and maybe surprise the hockey world. Jammer, great stuff, buddy. I appreciate your time today. Uh, look forward to talking to you again, and uh, we might give you a call here. We end up with the Blues, Blackhawks. We'll ring-a-ding you again, and, and we'll be able to dive into it a little more. But uh, once again, buddy, thanks a lot for, for joining us today. I appreciate it, guys, and Rivs. Happy for all your successes. Keep her going. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it, man. That was Jamal Mayers, former St. Louis Blue, former Chicago Blackhawk, Stanley Cup champion, a damn good teammate and a great all-around guy. So, uh, and his really, son's a big Blues fan. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right and he lives so. here in St. Louis. So, uh, Jammer, awesome stuff. Awesome. Love getting his perspective on things. We're going to head into the crossover next, and I'm anxious to see Anthony Stalter as he's going to join us because Anthony's usually driving the bus over here, and I want to talk to him now that we're you know hosts of radio shows. I want to you know talk to yeah. talk a little bit with him. Got so, a bus driver conversation coming up next. The crossover. We're back to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Center's newest store. Number 41 in Eureka is now open. Back with Ribs and BK. Right now, it is 1.50 p.m. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, your official provider of Rolex jewelry. You know what else it means? It's time for the crossover. 
I'm joined by my good buddy, Anthony Stalter, who's usually in this bus driver position. How are we doing, bud? You didn't crash today. No. You didn't. <laughs> Smooth sailing for Jamie Rivers out of the driver's chair. Yeah, I was worried. I thought for sure we'd go four-wheeling like early in this thing, too. Yeah, me too. <laughs> when I hopped in the car today and I heard you guys doing the crossover with Danny Mac and you said, yeah, I'm driving. Like, okay. That's honesty right there, buddy. That's, what, that's what you want in this business. Driver with a blindfold on. That's it's a right. challenge, right? Yep. You guys sound good, it though. Was smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. I would let my kids ride on that bus. Thank you very you much. Go. Now, no, Stalter might not. Easier. Yeah, I don't have to have kids. I can put some stuffed animals in there. It's easier for the guy without kids, right? That's true. All right, so Stoltz, we had a thing in the junk drawer today, and I want to get your take on it because I I always have fun doing these things when we're on the air together. And our good buddy T-Bone here, who's been masterful behind the board today, uh, he brought up a a motel that I found out is just a little bit outside of Vegas. Mm -hmm. It's a clown-themed motel. And apparently it's right next door or on a cemetery. Are you buying or selling? (laughs) Those eyes look like I am selling. I'm out. Okay, so what's the biggest issue for you? Is it the clowns? Is it the cemetery? Or is it just the overall, like, yes? Yeah, I'd I'd probably rank the cemetery one, but the clowns are right there, too. Okay, what is it about clowns that bother you? Well, because they don't bother me. Now, the ones that, like, are, like... Let's just say they're half pinned at your birthday party and yeah. their makeup is running and they smell like whiskey. <laughs> now, those guys kind this of bother me. This is my me. life. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday, kids. Happy birthday. But as a whole, growing up. Look like, at your future, kid. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. life. I used to have a birthday like you. Now look at me. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, sorry. That's right. But as a whole, like through my life, I was like, ah, clowns, you know, now obviously yeah. Stephen King's it. That made me, that made me kind of that question clowns. That killed me. Yeah, well done. Um, so, but yeah, what's the obsession with clowns? Well, the okay. So I never what they saw. Ever do to you, Stalter? I never. Well, first of all, wasn't uh, was it Gacy that was yeah, a clown? That, Gacy, okay, the okay. killer clown. So one guy, okay, gives all a right. bad. Well, Gacy, <laughs> Gacy was, was a clown. That's that's a real. That's a real clown. Yeah. That that went sideways. We'll say real sideways. <laughs> the clown from it. What's what's the Pennywise. name? Pennywise. Pennywise. Yes. So haunt my dreams. I've never actually seen it, but I got down a YouTube rabbit hole not too long oh, ago. Here we go. And the opening scene from one of the newer versions of it, when Pennywise is in the the uh, sewers, and the kid is, uh, you know, he puts. His brother gives him a, a, a nice origami mm, little boat. paper boat, yeah. and he's gonna go sailing. We're all oh, Timmy's gonna here. go is gonna go sailing. Mm-mm. Things go sideways for Timmy <laughs> as well. Timmy loses so, his arm. So I would say, see, I wasn't gonna say. Oh no, I'm telling him. Oh, I'm right. telling him. Okay, so that that is probably where I'm at with the clowns. Well, speaking of sideways, um, Cardinals. <laughs> Two wins, one loss, a little sideways on that one. What do you guys got coming up today on the fast lane? We are going to talk about said Cardinals weekend, which, look, is a positive. And let's just get ahead of this. We know Pittsburgh stinks. But there are a lot of bad teams in first place right now. That could have been Pittsburgh. Miami. But it's not. You it's know not. why? The Cardinals took care of business. Sure, the bats fell asleep yesterday. <laughs> Dakota Hudson had a rough, rough outing. Against a Major League Baseball pitcher's debut. Nevertheless, two out of the three. Uh, How long we're going to see baseball moving forward, that also apparently needs to be 
a discussion. Thanks, Marlins. Cardboard cutouts. Are you a fan of them? I was at first. I'm like, no. I, you and I might have still been doing the show together when the Fastlane was talking about. It. I'm like, forget it. I I, I kind of dig them now. One, a lot of them were going to charity, which is great. Mm-hmm. Two, watching like looking at the stadiums, like the like Dodger Stadium had all the cardboard cutouts right behind home plate. I think that's cool. And BT was talking about like Mike Trout catching a ball close to the stands yesterday. And the cardboard cutouts are right there, and some teddy bears are right there. I think it's kind of Did he give the cool. ball to the crowd? I don't think so, but <laughs> Meat was telling us about a a, a a meme or something, a tweet yesterday, because the Braves were pounding the Mets like 14-1, and somebody tweeted out, even the cardboard cutouts are heading for the stands, are heading, heading for the, uh, heading for the uh, cars. Well, T-Bone brought up funny. a great point, too. He's like the virtual fans that I think Fox had them on. He said, you know, as we get towards the end of the game, they started disappearing. So even the virtual fans <laughs> all started like, leaving. You know what? We got to beat the traffic. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the, the crowd noise, too. Oh, I love the crowd like noise. That? Yeah. It's got to add something, right? Like I mean, we talk about you kinda that. Lose, you kind of lose. You, you, you're just you're, you're into the game now. I was at a graduation party for my brother-in-law Sunday, and everybody there was asking, like, oh, what do you think? It's weird, isn't it? It's, it's a no. Like, the crowd noise makes it feel like there's people in the stands, and you find yourself watching the game so impactfully that you don't even notice empty seats. I agree. And the crowd noise made that so much easier, I thought. I'm with you. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, look, you guys have a great show on the Fast Lane. Everybody listening, thank you for enjoying the bus ride today. As I got behind the wheel, we had a great show. We had a lot of great guests. We had Daniel Nugent Bowman. We had Sarah Langs. We had Mark Spector. We had the one and only Jamal Mayers. You can find that on the podcast at 101 ESPN or on the app. Check it out. Stultz, you guys have a great show. Thank you. We'll see you guys tomorrow. You have been listening to the Ribs and BK podcast on 101 ESPN.